and uh so we started a little bit late we had some tech issues sorry y'all um welcome everyone we're so glad you can be here with us today uh, i'm nick wrangle i'm the executive director at, Le at legal aid society for northeastern new york most of you were here yesterday but some of you are new today so you get the pitch all over again which is kind of like the third time this week but um we do have a, a half day of CLE today presented by many incredible panelists. Um, we have um, some uh, the view from the bench. We have the legislative updates uh, first, and then we have an ethics presentation um, in a little while. Um, I do hope you stay for the whole program, but if you have to leave, you do need to sign out in order to uh, get your CLE credit and you have to submit an affirmation of the uh, programs that you did attend today. So everyone needs to have signed in, you need to sign out and you have to affirm which sessions you attended. That's true for yesterday if anyone um, missed those instructions, but we are recording these sessions. You cannot get CLE credit watching the recorded sessions, um, but you can go back and take notes and we welcome you to do that. Um, this program is brought to you by Lazany. If you'd like to make a donation or sign up with our private attorney involvement pro bono program, please see the registration desk. Um, please make sure your cell phones are silenced and that you take calls outside of the moot courtroom. There is an elevator that is wheelchair accessible to my right, and there are restrooms that are wheelchair accessible to my left. Um, if you need to take a break and you aren't, you know, you're just going to the restroom, you can just exit to my left and then you can avoid the sign in, sign out for the breaks situation. Um, just the bathrooms are over there, y'all. Um, um, similarly for coffee, this is all connected. You could just go get coffee. Um, if you need any assistance, please let us know. We have folks on hand who can help out. And we'll uh, we'll get started. So as many of you know, we're hosting this symposium to celebrate our 100 year anniversary. Legal Aid Society opened its doors in 1923. And since then, LASNI has expanded and continues to grow across the Northeast region. We now have 110 staff, plenty of openings, six offices in 16 counties, and also serve the St. Regis Mohawk Indian Reservation. We kicked off our celebration with an award ceremony on Thursday night. Um, we also wanted our anniversary to spotlight the kind of work we do here at LASNI um, as a legal services organization and to provide our staff with opportunities to meet and network with other folks in our field. Um, we offer legal services in over 10 different discrete issue areas, uh, including eviction defense, foreclosure prevention, family law, child custody. I probably could have mixed up the list for today's part, um, but I think you get the point. Um, I would uh, just want to say thank you to Albany Law School and the Government Law Center for hosting us and providing us this wonderful, wonderful space as co-sponsors. And uh, I'd like to thank everyone for um, participating all week. We really appreciate folks who came down to attend. And I will uh, kick it off with Jessica Keenan and Stephen Koch. Jessica is the uh, Assistant Deputy Director, Deputy Counsel for the New York State Senate Majority, and used to be my coworker. And Stephen Koch is a senior attorney now, senior counsel, also for the State Senate Majority Counsel's Office. And we're really excited and happy to have them here. Uh, and I will uh, turn it over to them. Thanks, Nick. Uh, so welcome, everybody. Good morning. Uh, this is our 2023 New York State Legislative uh, Update. 
Uh, as Nick said, I'm, I'm Stephen Koch and this is Jessica Keenan. We both, both work for the New York State Senate Majority Counsel's Office. Uh, my primary assignment is to the Senate Judiciary Committee. So that means I work on uh, bills that affect a wide variety of civil litigation matters, including landlord-tenant law, uh, family law, trusts and estates. Uh, 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 the, the committee's legislative jurisdiction is very broad. I work on constitutional amendments. Uh, my budgetary portfolio includes the judiciary itself and some indigent legal services programs. Um, and uh, the committee plays a key role in evaluating uh, judicial nominees. Uh, so that's that's my portfolio, Jess. Failure to start. Um, hi, everybody. I'm Jess Keenan. Um, as Nick said, I am an assistant deputy counsel with the majority counsel's office for the Senate. Um, I supervise staff who are assigned to our housing committee, as well as our human services cluster, which includes social services, children and families, as well as aging. Um, I mirror that for budget. So all things budget related that go through OTADA, the Office of Temporary and Disability Assistance, OCFS, the Office of Children and Family Services, as well as the Office of the Aging and uh, HCR all fall within kind of my purview. So Stephen and I are super excited to be here today to share some 2023 legislative updates with you all. Uh, to echo some of what Nick said, uh, we'd just like to thank Lasney and, and ALS for having us today. Um, Council's office and Albany Law School, there are deep long-standing ties. I, I think about what at least half of the staff is, prob or is probably uh, our alumni of, of Albany Law School. Um, and our office also works with the students here uh, through the Interbranch Communications Project, uh, which is something that we're really excited about. Um, and uh, uh, with LASNI, not only is Nick Rangel a former Senate colleague and mentor, uh, but our staff is filled with people who come from the world of civil legal services and public interest lawyering uh, more broadly. So this is a, a space that we're all uh, personally uh, passionate about. A little bit about the Senate Majority Counsel's Office, who we are and what we do. So individual senators have their own individ individual staff who work on legislation and constituent services. Uh, but we work for the Democratic Majority Conference as a whole under uh, the leadership of the Majority Leader, Andrea Stewart. Um, the goal of the CLE is to discuss legislation that was passed in 2023. Uh, with a, but we've, we've tried to highlight bills that we think will be particularly relevant to your practice. Um, <clears throat> this is going, so we'll start with a, a sort of overview of, of highlights from the last legislative uh, session. The, uh, some of these, some of what we'll discuss may not be directly related to your practice, but they'll be relevant to the sort of general context of uh, uh, developments in, in law and litigating in, in New York State. Uh, and then we will uh, dive into to specific issue areas. And so we'll focus on, on four key pieces, housing, family law, uh, income maintenance and public assistance, uh, and then a little bit on uh, impact litigation. Um, the written materials that we've distributed, uh, I think you all uh, should have uh, electronic copies. Uh, we've included uh, some of the bills that we're gonna be discussing today, the ones that we're gonna focus on the most and that we think uh, we hope will be the most uh, interesting and, and, and useful for you all. Um, 
it'll, they also include some bills that we probably won't get to discuss uh, uh, that much today. Um, uh, one important caveat sort of for this presentation as a whole, a lot of the bills that we're gonna be discussing, uh, they haven't been signed yet into law. So they uh, are subject to modification or even veto. So uh, this is all, a lot of it is fluid and we'll, we'll make a point of trying to let you know where the bills are in the legislative life cycle. Uh, uh, an important just sort of you know, public service announcement. Uh, we can't speak to the internal discussions or negotiations that went about any of the bills that we're uh, uh, gonna be talking about. Uh, we can discuss what the bills say and not really why they say it in the way that they say it. Um, we're gonna try to be, give it as neutral descriptions as possible as we can about the bills, uh, but any opinions that we offer are our own. It's not you know, the Senate or the Senate majority, and it shouldn't be considered uh, a source of uh, you know, legislative history or intent or anything like that. Uh, and so uh, with, all, with all those uh, provisos out of the way, I'll turn it to Jess for uh, uh, legislative highlights. <laughs> Hey everybody. So like Stephen said, flashing flashing lights here. This is anything I say is is just related and not Senate majority related. Um, but that being said, I am going to start um, with a focus on some highlights from the housing and social services realm that came from budget this year from the 2023-2024 budget um, that are likely relevant in some of what you all do as public service providers. Um, starting with housing, I'm sure a number of you, if you work in housing, may be familiar with the Homeowner Protection Program. We commonly call it HOP. That is a program that is run through the Attorney General's office, um, includes 89 service providers who work with income eligible individuals whose housing is at risk. Um, one of the focus areas is foreclosure. Um, I will plug our, our LASNI uh, host today, who I happened to look yesterday, and they are the contact provider for Albany County for HOP. So HOP was funded with $40 million in this year's budget. Additionally, the first-time homebuyers program was also funded at $25 million. Um, turning to some of our social services highlights, um, a number of you, even if you don't, uh, do housing work, may be familiar with the emergency rental assistance program that came about during COVID. Uh, we commonly call that ERAP. Um, there was some litigation related to the ERAP portal that you all may be familiar with. Um, the portal did close in January of 2023. Um, in this year's budget, there was a $391 million allocation, and that should cover any pending applications that were in the portal at the time of closure or any applications that remained outstanding in the portal at the time of closure, there should be sufficient funding to pay out any of those applications that are approved. In addition, the legal representation for eviction, um, there was a $15 million increase. So that program through OTADA is now funded at a total of $50 million. And I will turn it over now to Stephen to start with our judiciary highlights. Uh, so we had a, a busy year in the Judiciary Committee. Uh, three sort of general context highlights. Uh, one is, is uh, Senate Bill S-108, it's not a bill. Uh, this is the Equal Rights Amendment to the state constitution, uh, which received its second passage in the legislature this year. Uh, so this is a, a, an amendment to the state constitution that prohibits 
state discrimination uh, on a variety for uh, for a variety of protected classes, um, uh, including sex, sexual orientation, gender identity, uh, and so it uh, is meant to guarantee in the state constitution rights to, among other things, uh, abortion and, and same-sex marriage. Uh, so that received a uh, second passage in the legislature this year. It'll be on the ballot for voters uh, in November 2024. Uh, Court of Appeals nominations. Uh, this year, we had uh, a busy docket of uh, uh, Court of Appeals uh, 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 nomination uh, uh, proceedings. Uh, we had the first ever Senate rejection of a gubernatorial nominee to the Court of Appeals. Uh, and then that was followed by two confirmations, uh, one of the uh, now current uh, Chief Judge Rowan Wilson um, and a new Associate Judge, uh, Caitlin Halligan. And so that will have, uh, for years to come, effects on both development of New York law and the internal governance and operations of the court system itself. On the, the budgetary front, uh, I think the biggest issue that, that we dealt with was uh, the assigned counsel 18B uh, program. Uh, first raise for 18B lawyers in about 20 years, uh, raising hourly fees from $60 to $75 to $158 statewide. Um, uh, that was accompanied by uh, additional increases for uh, expert investigative services and other, other kinds of uh, sort of litigation support. Um, and it came with an appropriation of almost half a billion dollars, uh, which was a uh, hundred million more than, than uh, what was in the governor's original proposed budget. Uh, the cost for that will be shared between the state and uh, counties. Uh, and so with that, th those are our, our highlights for the year. And so now we'll turn to the sort of core of the presentation, the, the subject area uh, um, uh, pieces. And the biggest piece of that is uh, housing. So Jess, take it away. So as I'm sure all of you know, whether you do housing or not, housing is a hot topic, uh, both in government and the news and for regular folks um, who are struggling with housing. Um, I am gonna be focusing on two bills that are probably a couple of the most relevant bills for folks who work um, in the housing arena. Um, they are bills S2980C, and S2943B, they are in your materials. Um, neither of these bills has been signed by the governor. So these are bills that are subject to potential modification or veto. Um, so everything I'm going to tell you about the bills is as the bills were passed, but I can't guarantee that this will, will be what ultimately comes to fruition if they're signed. Um, they are also, um, 2980C in particular is a pretty big bill and covers a lot of different um, areas and issues. So I am going to be highlighting a few, um, but if housing is of an interest to you or an area that you work in, um, by all means, it would be a really good bill to kind of comb through. Um, so both of these bills deal with the Housing Stability and Tenant Protection Act, HSTPA. So in order to kind of give you um, a little bit of background to explain these bills in a way that hopefully makes sense, um, if you work in housing, I'm sure everybody is familiar with the HSTPA. If you don't, what is the HSTPA? Um, it was signed on June 14th of 2019, and it was uh, at the time historic um, housing legislation. 
it did a number of things, just some of the highlights um, in terms of the significant reforms. It made the rent laws permanent, established rent stabilization as an option statewide. It repealed the high rent vacancy deregulation and high income deregulation. It did a number of things across housing law. Um, so both of these bills deal with modifications and clarification to the HSTPA. The other thing that you will see should you uh, comb through your materials and read these two cases is that you are going to see in the legislative text references to the case Regina Metro v. DHCR. That is a Court of Appeals case from 2020 that was a combination of four appeals that came from the Appellate Division First Department. The four appeals all held, were all presenting a common issue under rent stabilization law related to overcharge calculation. So long story short, um, Regina Metro ruled that the HSTPA does not and cannot apply retroactively, um, specifically part F of the HSTPA that determines rent overcharge and how those are overcharges ought to be calculated. Um, Regina clarified that pre-HSTPA, a court can do a four-year look back at rent history when determining overcharges. Post-HSTPA, that is a uh, six-year look back. So you will also see Regina has a footnote. And any of you who work in the land of housing will know that for better or worse, there has been significant focus and emphasis on a footnote that came out of Regina related to the definition of fraud and common law fraud. In 2023, very recently, it was very recently during session, I think April, there was a case that came out of the first department the Burroughs case. Um, it is Burroughs v. 7525 153rd Street. Um, so the decision in Burroughs, yeah, it came out in April. The decision referenced Regina and the footnote in Regina relative to fraud. And what that case held is if a landlord has filed the legal rents with HCR, no overcharge will constitute fraud. So even if a landlord is knowingly overcharging what that legal rent is, if the legal rent was appropriately filed and available for the tenant to discover, there will be no fraud. So that brings us to our two bills. Um, I will start with 2180C, which clarifies procedures related to rent regulation and the application of HSTPA. Um, again, this is a super big bill with lots of provisions. Um, I am gonna hit some of the highlights for you um, in the multi-part bill. So part A of the bill establishes legal rent regulation when you're talking about combination of units. So if landlords are combining a rent regulated unit and a non-rent regulated unit, the unit um, that is created, the larger unit must be subject to the rent laws. The same thing if you have neighboring units and a landlord shaves a third 
off of the rent regulated unit to make the non rent regulated unit larger, that unit is now going to be subject to the rent laws. Um, it is also requiring owners to maintain all records and rent histories pre and post combination of those units, which comes into play when you're talking about cases looking at those overcharges. Um, in addition, it adds uh, provisions to the exemption for substantial rehabs. So currently, and prior to this bill, if an owner has a building that undergoes a substantial rehabilitation, there is an ability to be exempt from the rent laws. Under this bill, after a substantial rehabilitation, an owner will have one year to seek approval from HCR, or if the substantial rehabilitation is fully completed when this bill goes into effect, then there will be six months for those owners to seek approval, and approval must be denied if either the owner engaged in harassment of tenants in the previous five years, or if the building wasn't in substandard or seriously deteriorated condition. So if an owner has a perfectly sound, perfectly good building and guts that building to make it a luxury building with the thought that they will no longer be subject to some of the rent laws, that will no longer be the case if the building did not require that substantial rehab. Um, the bill also amends the legislative findings related to the Regina Metro decision. That was one of the things that was highlighted in the decision itself. Um, so there has been some changes there. Additionally, under this bill, there is now a financial penalty for owners who file a late annual rent registration. So if an owner is late with their annual registration, which is required, DHCR is going to provide them a notice of delinquency. It has to be by both mail and electronic mail. Once that is sent, if a owner continues to have that registration remain delinquent, there will be a financial penalty that can be $500 per unregistered unit per month for the entire period of the delinquency. So those are really the, I'll say some of the highlights from that bill. Um, moving to S2943B, this is really a companion bill, also making changes to the HSTPA. This bill is related to rent calculations and record maintenance under the HSPT, I apologize, the HSTPA. Um, so regardless of the number of years the court has to examine um, rent records, be it the four years pre-HSTPA or the six years post, there is no limitation in cases of fraud. So if there is a determination that there was fraud, a court can look at records going back however far they wish. So this bill really codifies that and codifies the ruling from Regina about um, over overages that anything that was a pre-July 1, 2019 is decided by the pre-HSTPA law and anything post is must be decided using the HSTPA calculations. 
Um, additionally, um, there is some language in that law about rent overcharges and a material breach can be considered fraud, whether or not the owner's conduct is fraud under the common law and whether or not the tenant relied on that untruthful or misleading statement. So um, this really gets kind of at the heart of that issue with the footnote in Regina and provides clarifying information that under the text of this bill, a tenant would not have to have relied on the faulty or misleading information in order for there to still be a fraud determination. So I just spewed a lot of very complex housing law um, at you very quickly. Um, so I will, I will pause now and turn it over to Stephen for some additional judiciary highlights. Uh, so I'm going to be discussing, in, these, are, these bills are both in your written materials. Uh, one is a, a law from 2022, um, and, or two laws, one from 2022 and then a chapter amendment from 2023. Uh, together, they're, they're called the Tenant Dignity and Safe Housing Act. Um, it, it'll, it'll be uh, the future Article 7D of the RPAPL, the Real Property Actions and Proceedings Law. Uh, so this is enacted, but not yet effective. Um, a quick sort of side note, uh, practice tip. What is a, a chapter amendment? That's not a term I was familiar with before I got to the legislature. I'm not sure it's, it's used much outside of the legislature. Um, so sometimes when uh, the state legislature passes uh, bills, the governor is involved in the process. So for instance, the budget, you don't pass budget until there is three-way agreement between the Senate Assembly and the governor's office about what the content of the budget is. But for probably almost most legislation, the governor's office isn't as involved. The, the Senate and Assembly will pass the bills and then the governor's office enters the process later. And so if the governor wants changes to the bill, um, uh, those negotiations will happen after the bill has been passed. And what will happen is uh, if there's agreement to modify the bill, so the governor will sign the bill that the, le the legislature passed. And then sometime shortly afterwards, usually at the beginning of the next legislative sessions, this is often happening in, in January, uh, legislative session runs typically from January to June, the legislature will introduce and pass a new bill uh, that amends the law that was signed just before. Uh, and so it, the, so the, the governor will, you know, there will be a, a chapter in this case of the laws of, of 2022, a session law. And then in 2023, at the beginning of the 2023 session, you will get an amendment to that chapter, a chapter amendment. So that's where that, that term comes from. So this, uh, this, uh, Tenant Dignity and Safe Housing Act, the final product was the result of that, of that process. Um, examples of changes that you can get from chapter amendments, some of them will be just sort of purely technical, like numbering sections. Uh, that happened here. If you look at the 2022 version of, of uh, this legislation, it was Article 7C of the RPAPL. And then in the revised version, it was Article 7D because things change over time and we just have to make those technical changes. Um, but chapter amendments can also involve much more substantive changes. And that's what happened here too. Uh, everything from the effective date when, when the law comes into effect to really what the, what the legislation is about. 
So, uh, and so we had, we had both of those kinds of changes here. So we had a, a change in just sort of technical numbering things, but we also had really uh, significant changes to um, how the legislation worked and when it goes into effect. So the original bill was set to go into effect in June of this year, but now um, uh, it'll it'll come into effect uh, at, at the end of this year, uh, December of 2023. So um, uh, we'll, we'll maybe start to see some cases under this legislation in, in 2024. So anyway, turning to the, the legislation itself, the purpose of this uh, is to provide upstate tenants with an affirmative cause of action to correct unsafe uh, conditions in their in their homes. Uh, if a petitioner in this kind of proceeding is successful, the court will issue an order to the landlord to correct uh, whatever conditions that the tenant is complaining about. Uh, I would contrast this with the way that tenants uh, raise warranty of habitability defenses in non-payment eviction proceedings. Under, under current law, typically a tenant will either be, you know, fall behind on their rent or maybe intentionally withhold their rent uh, because of unsafe conditions in their home, um, get sued for non-payment, be at risk of eviction, but then raise a defense, a warranty of habitability defense in the course of that eviction proceeding. But the, the tenant is still in a sort of defensive posture uh, and is facing the, the risk of eviction. And so this legislation is intended to provide an affirmative route before a tenant is in an eviction proceeding to for the tenant to try to um, uh, address conditions that they're that they're unhappy about. Uh, the comparison I would make is to what in New York City is commonly known as an HP proceeding. It, HP comes from the housing part of the civil court of the city of New York. That's the New York City uh, housing court, um, and it, New York City uh, law locally creates a similar mechanism for city tenants uh, to, to sue their landlords uh, in housing court uh, about uh, conditions in their, in their homes. And so that's the, um, a, a kind of model uh, uh, that this is flowing from. But this legislation uh, will uh, extend that kind of uh, system to upstate tenants. Um, so, uh, Geographically, if you look at the, the 2022 uh, law, you'll see that originally it applied uh, statewide, except for Long Island, Nassau, and Suffolk counties. The final version of the bill cut out New York City, so now it's this will apply everywhere north of north of the Bronx. Uh, how to bring a claim? This is a, a special proceeding, so Article Four of the C CPLR. Uh, so a tenant brings the claim by um, petition and notice of petition, uh, but uh, a tenant can also uh, start this proceeding or try to start this proceeding by order to show cause. Um, uh, just sort of uh, in the New York City context, I don't have data on this, but just sort of anecdotally and and uh, from sort of observation. Um, almost all of the, those cases in New York City begin by order to show cause, um, uh, often because tenants are saying that there's some kind of emergency in their home that needs to be corrected. Um, uh, and, and just because it's simpler uh, for, uh, it's simpler for the tenants, uh, most of whom are, are pro se uh, at this point. Um, that's kind of speaking personally, that's how I kind of expect that this will play out. But in the course of your practice, uh, whatever you observe, uh, let us know, because I'm interested to, to know how this plays out. Uh, so turning to the pleadings, uh, uh, however the case begins, the petitioner is going to need to uh, identify 
the conditions that they say violate uh, e e the warranty of habitability or any specific local or state housing code, safety rules, whatever. Um, and if the if the uh, if the petitioner is successful, the court will issue a an order uh, to the landlord to correct those conditions. And then, if the uh, order is not complied with, the petitioner can uh, try to enforce that order through probably a, a contempt uh, 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 proceeding. Um, if you look at the original bill, there was much broader relief available to a successful tenant. So the original legislation uh, provided not only for the court to issue this order to correct conditions, uh, but also monetary relief, retroactive and prospective. Um, uh, the, the retroactive um, uh, uh, rent abatement would have been to um, compensate the tenant for having lived with whatever conditions they were living with in the past. And the prospective uh, rent abatement was sort of an incentive to the landlord uh, to correct the conditions that the court would uh, say the tenant doesn't have to pay their full contract rent until the court is satisfied that the conditions are uh, corrected. All of that was removed uh, from the final legislation. So this is an example of the way that a chapter amendment can really um, significantly change the content of, of uh, the legislation. Um, uh, uh, by the way, another quick practice tip for um, uh, chapter amendments. If you see when a, a, the governor signs a bill, that the, the governor's signature is accompanied by a, a memorandum. Um, check that memorandum because what it'll often say is something like, I, the governor, am signing this bill, but with the understanding or with an agreement with the legislature that we're gonna come back later and fix it. Um, and so if you look at the 2022 version of this legislation, you'll see that memo there. Um, and that's a hint that something might be coming down the pipeline and that there may be significant changes to something that in the interim could be good law. Um, uh, the legislation uh, includes some uh, requirements for the court system to assist um, uh, uh, pro se uh, petitioners in, in beginning their cases and prosecuting these cases. Um, and as I uh, mentioned before, um, uh, very interested to hear how this plays out. So um, uh, if, you're, if you're litigating these cases or observing these cases as, the, as they start to um, move in the court system uh, next year, uh, please let us know. Um, uh, it, you know uh, questions, comments, concerns, complaints, uh, uh, bring them to us because uh, we're interested to, to know how this, how this plays out. Uh, uh, turning to uh, a, a different a bill and to close out our sort of the housing section of our uh, presentation. Uh, this is a bill S548 uh, from Senator Hoyleman Siegel, the chair of the Judiciary Committee. Uh, this legislation has been passed but not yet signed. Um, and so this is about uh, this, this bill addresses situations where a tenant dies um, and the estate of the tenant. Uh, is trying to figure out what to do with this tenancy that has that the estate is now sort of uh, holding. Um, under current law, real property law section 236 says that the tenant's estate uh, can ask the landlord for permission to assign or sublet uh, the deceased tenant's home. But the landlord doesn't have to uh, 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 consent to that request. Um, 
uh, and so that's that's where this legislation comes in, uh, because what what this bill says is that um, rather than sort of uh, the, the the future status of this this tenancy being at the discretion of the landlord, uh, this bill gives the the tenants estate uh, more power. Uh, so the estate. Uh, it retains the option for the estate to ask for permission to, it doesn't change uh, the existing process to ask for permission to uh, assign or sublet, but the estate can now just terminate the tenancy. Um, because without that, the estate will be on the hook for the remainder of the, the tenant's term uh, uh, under the lease. And so the way that this bill works is it says that the estate can unilaterally end the, uh, the tenancy uh, and the estate has to do two things. One, it has to notify the landlord that that's what they are electing to do. And two, they have to surrender possession of the property. Um, so either move all of the tenant stuff out or just make it clear that um, whatever property is left behind is, is being surrendered. Once those two things happen, the tenancy is terminated and the estate's legal obligations uh, are, are over. Um, uh, and so, uh, but that but that bill is is pending, not not yet uh, signed by the governor. Uh, and with that, um, we'll turn to uh, to family law. Got it on this time before I started talking. Um, so I am going to kick off our family law section. Um, the first thing I'm going to talk to you about is actually a budget part. So if you follow the budget in New York State, um, the budget as a whole is broken into various parts. Um, staff works on parts depending on what their portfolio includes. So I'm going to be talking to you about Alpha Part U, which is kind of how we refer to it. It is ELFA, which is the Education, Labor, and Family Assistance portion of the budget. Um, Alpha Part U in particular deals with um, eligibility for child care assistance. Um, everyone knows child care is very expensive, um, can be a huge cost for families. So this year in the budget, the financial eligibility for families was raised to 85% of the state median income, which is approximately $80,000 for a family of four. Um, the estimation is that that increase will make somewhere in the neighborhood of 113,000 additional children eligible. Um, the 85% SMI is the federal maximum. So without um, being non-compliant with federal requirements, that is the absolute max for child care eligibility. The way that funding works for child care is it flows through something called the Child Care Development Block Grant. Um, federal funding flows into the block grant and is combined with state funding to create the money that provides and pays for child care assistance for families who are eligible. Because that money flows into one block grant, all of those funds are subject to all of the rules, requirements, prohibitions that are set federally. Um, and there are a number of them, but specific to the context of this budget part um, is the maximum cap. Um, in addition to raising the income eligibility cap, 
um, child care providers can now be paid for up to 80 absences. So if a provider has a child who is on assistance that that provider receives funding through the local district, the local social services district, um, they will no longer um, be missing out essentially on that money if a child is absent. Um, and as I said, it will cover up to 80 absences. In addition, um, that budget part also lowered the threshold for what low-income families' contribution is. Prior to um, the inaction of this part, low-income families could be required to pay up to 10% of their income if they receive child care assistance. Um, now they will only be required to pay 1%. So um, those are some of the, the budget highlights in the child care world that we really hope will help, um, particularly low-income folks who are struggling to pay for child care. Um, kind of in that same vein, I'm now going to talk to you about Bill S-5327A. Um, this is also a bill that has not yet been signed. Um, this bill really is meant to expand upon a chapter from 2022. So prior to 2022, if a family was eligible for child care assistance, that assistance was really tied to whatever their eligible activity was. So to be eligible, folks have to have a work activity, a vocational activity, an educational activity or, you know, commitment that meets the eligibility criteria in order for them to get this assistance. So prior to 2022, that assistance was really tied to a person's schedule. So if someone was going to an educational program, taking auto mechanic classes, and they were Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, that person could have childcare assistance Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Um, in 2022, a bill was chaptered. It was chapter 694 of 2022, which said that local districts are not required to limit their child care assistance specifically to that schedule. So it was, it gave districts the option to be more flexible in terms of the child care assistance related to people's schedules. This bill would take away that option and would make it mandatory that local districts provide child care assistance up to and including full-time care, regardless of the actual hours scheduled. So if someone works a job from nine to two under this bill, their child could still attend a full-time program from 8.30 to 4.30. They would not be obligated to pick that child up in the middle of the afternoon, disrupting the child's program. Um, so should this, should this bill be signed, it would really build upon um, what was done to try to make the child care assistance more flexible for folks who either have jobs that the schedule is varied, folks who are in education programs, who may have set class schedules, but, you know, have other obligations in terms of projects, studying, um, or, you know, just folks who need child care in order to, you know, make their life work. Um, so with that, I am now going to turn it over to Stephen for the judiciary updates related to family law. Uh, so I'll be discussing two bills. The first is uh, S5935 from Senator Clear. 
Uh, this is another one that has been passed, but not yet uh, signed. And this is called the, the Hope Card Act. Um, and the, the idea here is to provide um, people who receive orders of protection, uh, the, the petitioners, I guess, um, with a portable wallet-sized card that summarizes the terms of the order of protection. And the idea is to uh, uh, provide an easy way for people who to, uh, uh, sh you know, rather than having to carry around the whole actual order, something that they can carry around in their pocket so that they need to show law enforcement um, that uh, uh, that they are that they are protected by an order of protection, uh, that, that that's something that they can do. Um, it's inspired by uh, programs in some other states. I think Montana was the first to do it. Uh, and I think about half a dozen others have have followed, uh, and and so now now we're we're catching up. And uh, so what this bill says is that uh, uh, the Office of Court Administration, the the the, the court system, uh, when someone gets an order of protection, uh, they can ask for the court system to print them out a a copy of this card, and this card is going to have information like who they are, who the respondent is. And who who besides the petitioner uh, is protected under the order? Other family members, um, pets are mentioned specifically, um, uh, uh, and so that that is the the, the Hope Card Act. Um, I'll final bill in this section um, is uh, uh, about legal protections for gender affirming care. This is S two four seven five again from Senator Hoyleman Siegel. Uh, and this bill has, was signed into law. The governor signed it uh, in June during Pride Month. Um, and uh, uh, this is, this legislation uh, builds off of similar legislation that the, the Senate majority and the, the legislature passed before related to um, trying to make New York a safe haven in, in the first instance for abortion. Uh, following the overturning of Roe v. Wade. And this this uses similar mechanisms, but in the um, gender-affirming healthcare space. And so it works in um, uh, a few few ways. Uh, the first is that it, it limits the state's uh, ability to cooperate with out-of-state investigations or litigation around gender-affirming care. So it limits the governor's discretion um, related to extradition requests from states that might criminalize this behavior, um, uh, uh, limits the um, enforceability of subpoenas from out of state um, uh, in cases that are seeking to penalize people for either receiving or um, assisting or you know, helping a child or supporting a child get um, gender affirming care. It provides uh, protection for uh, medical practitioners from either professional discipline or uh, some kind of negative uh, uh, um, consequences related to insurance coverage, uh, uh, protecting them from uh, uh, any negative consequences from states that might try to, to penalize them for, for providing uh, care that is, that is legal in New York State. Um, and then in the, in the family law context, uh, the, the, the law um, prohibits New York state courts from considering law in sort of custody disputes, considering laws from states like Florida or Texas that might be trying to criminalize gender affirming care or try to use one, you know, in the, in the, in the hypothetical where one parent um, 
uh, wants to support their their child's uh, request to get gender affirming care and the other doesn't. And some states might treat that care as, as child abuse or a reason to award custody from one parent to another. And, and this bill um, or this law says that uh, New York courts aren't supposed to consider the laws from those other states. Brings up some interesting and challenging -ish constitutional law, you know, federalism challenges about uh, conflicts between state laws. Um, uh, but that, that was a, a sort of a, 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 an important bill that has now uh, been signed. Um, and so now we'll turn to, uh, to uh, public assistance. So in the land of public assistance, the first two things I'm going to talk to you about were alpha budget parts, part X and part Y. So these were part of the enacted budget. So these are going to, to go live at their effective dates. Um, the first alpha part X deals with income disregard for public assistance recipients. Um, so if you don't work with folks who receive public assistance, um, there is under public assistance in the social services law, there are certain types of income, certain monies that are disregarded, that the local districts do not consider um, when making the determination if a recipient is eligible to receive public assistance. So this law is going to require that if an individual's total income is less than 200% of the federal poverty level, that any earned income that a recipient receives from participating in a qualifying work activity or training program is disregarded. So when people are receiving public assistance, there are times that there are requirements in terms of training programs, you know, trying to put people into work programs, trainings, things that ultimately the goal is to make them self-sufficient. Um, but this will um, allow individuals who, if they are receiving um, any kind of payment, uh, stipends as a result of those programs, that will not count against them in terms of the receipt of their benefits. Additionally, this allows for a once-in-a-lifetime six-month income disregard. So if people are engaged in one of those programs, um, if they complete a program under their public assistance requirements, they get a job. Um, currently, if their income goes over what is allowable, their benefits will end. Um, and what has, you know, we've heard anecdotally is, you know, particularly depending on what your job is, there can be a lag of two weeks, four weeks before people are getting a paycheck. Additionally, you're talking about folks who were receiving public assistance, so they were already limited um, in terms of their resources. And what this really is hoping to do is to give people that six month period where they will continue to receive their full benefits while kind of getting on their feet with their employment and hopefully put people in a better position to have long-term success in terms of their self-sufficiency. So that is, is Alpha Part X. Alpha Part Y also relates to assistance, um, but it relates to public assistance fraud. Um, this is kind of a hot button issue in the news right now, the issue of skimming, that people's public assistance benefits are being stolen. Um, either people, you know, are having a skimming device where people are actually paying or, 
you know, people's EBT cards are being hacked into the same way anyone's credit card could be hacked into. Um, but currently, um, prior to um, this budget part being enacted, there was not a mechanism to reimburse folks whose assistance was stolen. So this will require that OTDA must create a protocol for local districts in order to reimburse folks for benefits that are determined to be stolen. Um, there are a couple of different pieces to this. The first one I'm going to note is that this does not cover SNAP. SNAP, although it flows through OTDA, is a fully federal program, and this bill does not cover that. Senator Gillibrand has introduced a bill at the federal level for reimbursement of SNAP benefits, although I don't think it had much movement in the uh, in the last session. Um, this is kind of not a never-ending bill. People are not going to be able to claim reimbursement for benefits that were stolen in 2001. Um, there are set timeframes in the bill. Um, folks will be able for the time period from January 1 of 2022 until September 30th of 2024, folks will be able to make two claims for federal per federal fiscal year for replacement of stolen benefits. After October 1 of 2024, individuals will be able to make one claim per federal fiscal year for replacement of stolen benefits. Um, there is also legislation in here. One of the things that um, we heard a lot about was, you know, concern about, you know, any kind of requirements that people have interaction with law enforcement, that for a variety of reasons, people may not feel comfortable reporting that their benefits were stolen to law enforcement. Um, so that is really limited here, that unless there is a federal um, requirement or some other extraneous legal requirement that people have to have that interaction with law enforcement that is not required for people to recoup these stolen benefits. So that is kind of the two public assistance pieces. Um, I'm now going to give you just a quick overview of a bill S4548. This has not yet been signed. So again, could be could be vetoed or subject to uh, modification, but this is a data matching bill. So this would require OTDA to work with electric and national natural gas utility providers to create an automated identification system. Um, if you're familiar with the HEAP program that provides heating assistance to folks, um, kind of thinking in the same vein. Most utility providers have programs for low-income individuals, um, but by AARP's estimation, about 1.1 million households that qualify are not enrolled. Um, be it because the enrollment process is challenging, because people don't know, um, any number of reasons, but this would require that the utility companies provide their client lists essentially to OTDA and OTDA would have a list of programs that the eligibility, the financial eligibility would already have been determined. So for example, if a person is receiving TANF safety net assistance, any number of benefits that come with a financial eligibility determination in order to receive those benefits, you would then know if those financial um, numbers fall within what the utility companies allow for their programs. And OCHDA would be able 
under this bill, they would be required to advise the utility companies that a person meets the requirements. They would not release what benefit the person receives through OTDA. There are confidentiality provisions built into this um, that really safeguard um, what the information can be used for and what information is actually shared. OTDA would simply be telling the utilities, yes, Bobby and Susie meet the income eligibility requirements, and then those individuals would be automatically enrolled in the utility saver programs. And that is the, the end of public assistance. Uh, so how much time do we have? Okay, perfect. So uh, we're gonna close this out uh, with a brief discussion of um, uh, one, one bill uh, that's uh, relevant to uh, impact litigation. Uh, this is S5137 uh, from one of our new senators, Senator Gonzalez. Uh, this has passed both houses, but has not yet been signed. And uh, this bill is about uh, class action lawsuits against the government, what the, uh, against the state. Uh, what the bill does is that it, it abrogates a common law rule um, that um, has existed in New York for some time uh, that has... Um, made it hard, harder for uh, litigants seeking to get class certification um, when their claims uh, uh, are against the government for, for some kind of government operations, this government operations rule. And uh, so what this uh, bill says is that when a court is considering a uh, motion for class certification, that the uh, uh, the fact that the that it's the government on one side of the V, that should not be a reason for the court to deny class certification. The, the plaintiffs are going to have to prove all of the other uh, uh, you know normal requirements: commonality, typicality, numerosity, all of those things. Uh, but this is saying that um, uh, the the fact that the government is a defendant is not a a sort of sufficient reason for the court to deny class certification. Some some background on this. So um, uh, to to get class certification, one of the things that a, a plaintiff has to show is that um, uh, 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 pursuing the claim as a class is a superior way uh, uh, is a superior sort of method than through individual uh, uh, litigants uh, uh, suing all on their own. And uh, for, I think some, some decades, New York courts have interpreted that to mean that, well, in the context of lawsuits against the state, the doctrine of stare decisis is going to be enough to protect individual litigants. If one person sues the state over or you know, some state entity over something that the government does and they win, then some other similarly situated uh, person who wants to complain about the same thing can look to that case and, um, uh, and that they will be adequately protected by um, uh, you know, the, the plaintiff who won maybe their first individual case. And so therefore class, a sort of uh, proceeding as a class is not a superior method of pursuing the claim and so class certification should be denied um that 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 common law rule uh uh um 
uh, uh, was was received some criticism um, uh, with with some people arguing, and I think this is where the, the sponsor was coming from that class certification that that, that uh, suing as a class is especially important for uh, low income people um, uh, when challenging uh, government policy, and that this is a, an important tool for um, uh, for people who might otherwise not really. Uh, be able to pursue their claim, pursue legal claims that they have um, outside of the context of a, of a, a class action um, case. Uh, and so, and so, what this bill does is, is it, it abrogates that rule. And it, it says it, you know, the, the the headline is this is making it easier for people to sue the the, the state government um, uh, via via class action. Uh, and so now uh, we've we've left. Uh, We've left uh, a couple of minutes at the end uh, for any uh, questions that people have, um, uh, and so we'd uh, we'd be happy to to answer any questions you all have. I know we started a little bit late, um, so if there are no questions, we can we can just end. Uh, I'll I'll um, I'll just note that your written materials include uh, a couple of bills that we we weren't able to discuss today. Uh, these are bills that we thought were particularly relevant to sort of litigants and, and civil legal services providers, um, all related to sort of affidavits and affirmations, um, and also the process for applying for uh, notary licenses and renewing your notary licenses. That was a, a bill that we signed into law that should hopefully make that a little bit easier. And so the text of, of some of those bills are, are in your written uh, uh, materials as well. Um, and so with that, uh, thank you all. And, and we'd, uh, you know, if you have any questions, we'll try our best to answer. So I would um, encourage people to reach out to council's office as they have questions about um, specific legislation, bills that are being enacted and um, chapter amendments um, for the budget pieces and budget parts. For example, there are uh, different um, effective dates at the end of each part of those budget bills. And so as the budget process unfolds and individual pieces of legislation become law, um, it's sometimes helpful to talk to council's office to find out, you know, kind of what's going on with that piece of legislation or that update or that change. And then also kind of maybe explain where it might live in the statute or where to look for guidance or regulations. So I do encourage people to build a relationship with council's office, especially in the off session when they are not working a million hours. Um, and uh, we really appreciate the two of you coming in today. And thank you so much, Jessica Keenan and Stephen Koch. Next up, we have our judicial panel view from the bench. We have the Honorable Judge Connolly, the Honorable Judge Reba, and the Honorable Judge Rivera. Um, we will set you up with a third microphone and uh, please find your way up.
Yes, okay. Um, good morning, folks. Thank you for having us here, and thank you to the Legal Aid Society and the Great uh, Government Law Center for, for hosting this uh, CLE symposium. I'm Judge Gerald Connolly. I'm a judge of the Court of Claims of the State of New York, appointed by uh, the governor years and years ago and uh, approved by the Senate and, and later reappointed uh, by a subsequent governor and approved by a, uh, a subsequent Senate. I, I'm an acting justice of the Supreme Court here in the third judicial district. I've been doing that for 16 years, meaning I've been doing Supreme Court work and not Court of Claims work as, as we understand it uh, for that time. For the past three years, I've been the administrative judge of the third judicial district, which is a seven county area, Albany, Rensselaer, Schoharie, Green, Columbia, Ulster, and Sullivan counties. Uh, I have with me uh, uh, my friends, and close friends, I think, and, and, and colleagues, um, Judge Christina Reba, who is an elected justice of the Supreme Court uh, of the state here in the third judicial district. Um, she was also recently appointed as the supervising judge of the Supreme Court, Supreme Courts of the third judicial district uh, be before beginning her term in 2016. Uh, she held various systems in the court system and in private practice, as well as with the appellate division, third department, and the attorney general's office. Um, she is just an incredibly active and, and well-respected uh, justice in this district, and she, she is a secretary to the Association of Justices of the Supreme Court of the State of New York. She's a board member of the National Association of Women Judges, New York chapter, She's a past president and, and great leader of the Albany County Bar Association. Um, I can't read all of this. Uh, I, it's not enough. I can't. I, I can read it, but I don't want to. Win. I just. I'm just. I, I'm only, I'm teasing. I'm teasing her on purpose when I say that. Um, and it's gonna. It's gonna be just as long for Judge Rivera. And uh, but but she's also a proud alumni of Albany Law School and a trustee of Albany Law School, where you're the chair of the law committee and a member of the executive committee of Albany Law School. And also with us is uh, Judge Richard Rivera, and he's here too. No, uh, I'm gonna stop with the comedy, I promise. But uh, we, we, 
uh, we are we are all uh, we are good friends up here, so we may slip into that occasionally. Uh, judge Rivera is an Albany County uh, Family Court judge, being uh, having been elected in 2014 uh, to that to that countywide uh, bench. Um, he was appointed to preside over the domestic violence part at the Albany County Family Court in 2017. He also presides over the Albany County Youth Part since its creation in 2018, pursuant to the Raise the Age legislation, which, which you may be familiar with. He's been the supervising uh, family court judge of the third judicial district of all the family courts in the third JD um, since 20, pardon, 21. 21. Uh, and uh, the, the problem in, in my working with Judge Rivera as the supervising judge of the family courts of the third JD is whenever I ask him about something that's happening or something that's not going you know, quite as well as we hope it would be in one of the courts, he instantly and he volunteers to, to do that work also. And, uh, and, and I, I just don't know where he finds the time to do all of the work he does. He's the <laughs> he, he's the uh, the Integrated Domestic Violence Court Judge for Rensselaer County, Albany County, and Columbia, and Schoharie as well, uh, with, and Green, which he'll, he'll, he will describe, you know, many of you may be aware of it. It's a great program in the court system that's been around for some years to kind of keep people from bouncing from court to court when they're involved in a uh, family or domestic violence situation that is also has uh, either matrimonial actions involved or criminal actions involved. Um, and as you all know, you can bounce between courts while all of those simultaneous um, criminal, or excuse me, uh, legal matters are, are going on. Um, and he, he does that for, for many of our courts. Uh, in addition, he, uh, to, as I said, he is the supervising judge for the family courts. And uh, most importantly, maybe, um, he is the uh, chair, co-chair of the Franklin H. Williams Judicial Commission has been for two years now, um, which is just a huge job, statewide job in the court system. That commission was established to develop programs to improve the perception of fairness in the court system and to ensure equal justice in New York State. And um, I, I see what he does there. And I know Judge Reba sees what he does there as well. And it's just beyond me how he carries the immense load that he does uh, both as a practicing judge and a supervising judge and still does that that huge job within the court system as well. So um, I, I will say, uh, speaking not for myself, but those with me, it's a great panel that, that we have here. Um, so that, that's you know our, our thanks uh, to you uh, for having us here. And um, the executive director Rangel invited us to, get, to give a view from the bench you know, and, and I said, well, what do you have in mind? And she said, well, what about, you know, topics that are of interest to you as judges in your fields of practice here in the third JD um, and myself doing Supreme Court work and in having some oversight over city courts and, and some of the other courts. And also Judge Reba doing Supreme Court work and having oversight over the Supreme Courts and uh, Judge Rivera, who's also enacting Supreme Court justice among his many other duties and having oversight over the family courts and his other, other areas. Um, and she wanted us to say, talk about areas that we have, um, that, that, that we have some interest in that intersect with things that public service uh, attorneys like yourselves, the Legal Aid Society in particular, um, are involved in. And, that, and that's, for us, that will include some housing and landlord tenant court issues, 
in Albany in particular, which uh, I am not, none of us are, are housing court judges, but I do have some um, responsibilities in that area. And, I, and, I, and I'm familiar with some responsibilities in that area and I'm capable of speaking about those to some degree, uh, particularly matters involving uh, matrimonial issues that come in, which is a matter of great uh, concern to all of us. And, and we, you're always welcome to talk to us about those and matters in, involving uh, family court matters and IDV matters, integrated domestic violence court matters, as well as uh, foreclosure matters uh, that we've, we've all worked with over the years in our responsibilities. Um, I was going to speak to some degree about the, uh, the, the Tenant Dignity and Safe Housing Act, uh, but Stephen did a, a far better job than, than I could have done in, in explaining it. And I, I also want to say before I move on, he did a great job in explaining um, the chapter amendment process, uh, which, which I, I worked for the governor's office some many years ago. And it was always our complaint when we worked in the governor's office that at the end of the legislative session, which is May, June, usually, uh, you know, they would all go home. The council from the, the from the legislature, which I know Judge Rivera was at one point, also, and then the, these these enormous truckloads of bills would come to the governor's council office, and we would work hard all summer trying to figure them out and and making suggestions uh, for chapter amendments, and then negotiating the chapter amendments. and And it's a we we used to call it an inside baseball type issue, um, the chapter amendments. But it's it's a great process, and uh, he, you explained it. Very, it's the first time I think I've ever heard anybody explain it in a, in a, in a setting like this, and you, you did a great job of it. And uh, it, 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 it got my antenna up and thinking about the old days and those summers when we used to grumble about the, the Senate and the legislative uh, council and, and, and what they had put in that we had to ask them to, to look at again. Um, so um, we, we do envision this presentation as, as a give and take. We want to give the view from the bench and, and we're very interested in, in hearing you know, your thoughts or, or your concerns or things that we should bear in mind um, going forward. And, uh, but I, I just before I do just a little bit more uh, before we start in, I, you know, I know we're preaching to the choir, um, but I think it's, it's really important for us to, to stress the incredible, incredible importance uh, of your job to the fair administration of justice and, and that we recognize that and we appreciate it. Um, listen, we all know we have, we have uh, amazing constitu constitutions in this state and in, the, in this country, you know, that are dedicated largely to the protection of the rights of citizens. And we have, goodness knows how many statutes that have been passed. You know, we've all looked at McKinney's or maybe I'm dating myself when I say we've all looked at the McKinney's, uh, but you know, the statutes that have been passed over the years, and you just heard Stephen and, and Jess go, go through a number of other statutes that have that just went through the legislature. And, and they're, they're, those statutes, as you could clearly hear in their description and their voice are dedicated to the protection of the rights of individual citizens from, from that, that could be trod upon whether from the government or from you know other citizens who have greater greater power because of money or whatever other reason act greater access to the courts than they do um and we have that great constitution those great constitutions we have these great statutes they don't do anybody any good if they can't get into court right or if they don't know about them and can't come to court and assert their rights and and how do they do that how do you do that? You know, most, many, many people here are legal, members of the Legal Aid Society. And, and you're there, we know, to, to protect those rights and to give those people a voice 
and to give the Constitution and the uh, the statutes their, their fullest extent uh, or application. So uh, I can tell you uh, without uh, fear of contradiction that any judge is is extraordinarily happy when they've got cases and a member of the Legal Aid Society comes in front of us uh, to represent uh, you know those who need it. And 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 you're you're very very welcome in our courts and 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 your questions are or, or suggestions are welcome to us now. Um, particularly, you know, I, I I know you know justice means a lot to me, and I know how much it means to Judge Reba and Judge Rivera. It's meant something to them in their entire lives. But we're you know we're constrained uh, because of our positions. We we can apply the law. We can. Um, we can make sure that people, you know, can't receive, you know, rulings from the courts without checking off every box to meet their the standard that they have to meet, meet the elements of what they, that must be met in order to receive whatever relief they're requesting. But we can't be lawyers. Uh, we we can't stand up for people, even if we see might might see something. Uh, we might be able to give hints, but that's about as far as we as we can go. Uh, we can't. Um, assert new causes of action. If we do, as you all know, we're no longer judges. We've 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 stepped over our ethical boundaries, and we are we are we we are no longer being judges. And we can we, you know we can lose our positions. Um, so that's again why you know we we consider these responsibilities that many of you have, or the pro bono work that many of you do, uh, so important, and why you're so uh, welcome in our courts. Um, <clears throat> so uh, I will say, uh, looking at the agenda that uh, that Nick uh, Rangel put uh, put together for this two day symposium, uh, it it made made us smile a little bit because um, you know there's so many topics there that were near and dear to our hearts as judges, as, as experienced and long practicing judges. Um, you know, family offenses are there. Uh, summary eviction proceedings were were already discussed with you. Uh, ethical issues were, were discussed with you, and I saw that uh, there was a presentation on Article 78 proceedings vis-a-vis uh, uh, -vis, um, particularly agency determinations, which is something that Judge Rivera and Judge Reba and I are, are very just highly, highly familiar with. And you know, it's it's something that in Albany County in particular we see a lot of because it's the seat of state government, and often those Article 78 proceedings with regard to agency determinations that can affect your client's rights and, and responsibilities are, um, you know, they come before us. Uh, so in that context, we wanted, we, we're going to speak about some areas that we particularly, where we particularly welcome help. Uh, and as I said, those are matrimonials, uh, in, uh, the integrated domestic violence programs and housing, as well as to some degree, you're, you know, just a little back and forth on, on, on practice before us. Um, so I thought we'd start uh, Judge Reba with, and, and Judge Rivera with, with speaking about um, matrimonial matters that are, are brought before us. Sure. Uh, so before I begin, uh, how many of you actually practice um, matrimonial in the area of matrimonial law? Excellent. All right. So first, I want to echo the sentiments of Judge Connolly and thank you for all your services. Whenever we see an attorney from Legal Aid, we're very excited to have that representation because Pro se litigants have a very difficult time, especially in civil courts, because there's a lot of rules they have to follow, and it's, they're very confused. We don't have a, an SRL office or self-represented litigants office, so 
often we get phone calls and we can't we can't represent one side. So we try to to give them resources by telling them to call the law library and things like that. But um, obviously, as somebody who doesn't have a legal background, it's really hard for those pro se litigants. Um, so with regard to matrimonials, that first preliminary conference, for those of you who practice in, in this area, we send a uh, preliminary conference letter out that tells you specifically what has to be filed prior to that first conference. And um, many times that those requirements are not complied with, and that's really um, a disservice to the client because if you file that statement of net worth and have all of your, your ducks in a row at that first conference, we can really roll up our sleeves and talk about ADR. And that's really in the best interest of both sides, especially um, if there's one paying party, you know, because many times because we're in the capital region, even though there's a moneyed spouse, it's not exactly a New York City, Manhattan moneyed spouse. So that that money is limited and um, there's usually a mortgage involved. So if you can come to that first conference and then manage client expectations, by you know, relying on the DRL, the domestic domestic relations law. There's a calculation for child support. There's a calculation for for duration of maintenance. So really, you know, if, if they've been married for five years and out the gate someone's asking for 15 years of maintenance, we can let them know. You know, that is not even in the realm of of possibility. But it really takes um, talking to your clients before that first conference and letting them know what's likely going to happen. Obviously you can deviate and there's ways to do that. But if we can have most of the information ready, then I, I know that in your materials, you have our ADR um, program and it's really beneficial, especially for modest means individuals. We have um, court referees that um, are their OCA employees. We can send the case over. Carmelo Lacuadero is our coordinator. And um, these individuals are very, very good at settling cases and helping, and they can actually serve in almost a better capacity than a judge because they can actually give opinions and tell you what they think is going to happen very candidly and in those cases can settle and i think it's in the best interest of both sides to settle in the beginning to to have more money to split between the parties instead of giving it to the attorneys so um so i would say out the gate it's really preparedness at that first conference and being willing to to make sure your clients understand what's likely to happen and manage those expectations so you're likely to get a settlement so that's kind of all right. Yeah. So uh, you know, and I'm sorry. Uh, we we spoke about this. We've spoken about this earlier. The three of us have, and and it was, you know, we, we it was almost a question that we had for for any of you who wanted to speak about it. And it just doesn't have to be just in matrimonial matters. But it was the idea of the managing expectations when you're an attorney who's being paid for by a, a, another source. All right. So you have ethical responsibilities. I know Mr. Gaynor up there. Uh, knows about attorneys' eth ethical responsibilities. You have ethical responsibilities to achieve everything you can for your client, obviously, and, and that and everything they ask for that is is reasonable uh, and, and and not outside the bounds uh, of law. But but your your resources are limited, uh, whether you're a pro bono attorney or a legal aid society attorney. You have other many other responsibilities, and the more you do on one case, which may be appropriate, but th that that's always means that's the less resources you have for maybe another case or 10 other cases or a hundred other cases that are equally deserving. So, you know, we, we look at that when we see um, either pro bono or legal aid or other public service attorneys come in and you, you have to, you have to ask, you know, what are, what, what happens in a situation where somebody wants the world 
where, where one of your clients who, who you have an ethical responsibility to, as any other attorney does, wants the world for some reason, and maybe even more than they than they should get or reasonably get. Now, if, you, if, you, if you're a private attorney, the answer sometimes can be easy, I assume. I've never been a private attorney. I've always been a, a government paid lawyer. But, but the answer sometimes can be easy. I'll be happy to chase that. Give me your forty thousand dollar, you know, uh, uh, retainer, and, and and we will be happy to take that to the highest court in the land to try to get you that. But uh, we, I see that um, in, in my time when legal aid came in, or when other, when we had the pro bono assigned attorney list on matrimonials quite a bit, and I know you have as well, Judge Rebus. So, how, how, if anyone has any thoughts on how, uh, and you don't need to, uh, but if you have thoughts on how you try to manage those expectations up front, um, you know that. That's something that I, I we know that you need to bear in mind. And uh, Judge Rivera, you've run into these issues as well. I, I do. And while you all get your thoughts together, <laughs> whenever I conference cases, I try to get the attorneys to see that there's a middle ground, right? We all have a client to represent. We all want to start here, you know, but there's always a middle ground that you can reach that helps everybody. And I, and I often tell them, don't waste the court's time sticking to your corner when ultimately you're gonna require me to make a decision that's gonna bring it closer to the middle. And uh, I, I think you're all familiar with the case of Crawford that has to do with orders of protection that are issued and, and it deprives the, the party, not the protected party, the other one of some interest. And we, we had a case, I had a case in, in my integrated domestic violence court where there were farmers and they had a farm that was their business and they owned it jointly. And they had it, they would go to farmers markets. And of course, the order of protection excluded the husband from, from the farm. And so there was an argument on both sides as to who really was running the farm. You know, there was an allegation that the father wasn't there during the day because he worked, he had a full-time job. And his attorney was sticking to the fact that he and his other son were the ones running the farm. And I said to the attorneys, look, you know the truth here. You need to go out in conference and figure out a way to work this out. Because if he is, in fact, working outside of the home, why are you going to waste my time with a Crawford hearing for me to wind up hearing that he works full time outside of the home? It makes no sense. And so they sort of came up with this agreement that that created this, what I call the, the uh, custodial arrangement over the farm, you know, where, where the, the mother was there with the children working it during the day, the father would come at night, and then they took turns every other weekend, one of them would go to the farmer's market in Brooklyn while the other one worked the farm on the weekends. You know, I, I tell them that because it doesn't benefit their clients any. And these are, th this particular case had um, a, one private attorney and one government attorney. And so you know who's more likely, you know, as they say, more likely to drag their feet. And so it's important to know that because sometimes you have a, a big caseload. So let's figure out with your client what is the ultimate outcome here? What is best for this case? Let's try to get you there so that you can live with something that you can live with. You know, and, and that brings up a point that, you know, I know you spoke about um, preparation and being ready coming in. You know, we, we understand. I know you're, you're all practicing attorneys and you've seen it. Judges always want to resolve matters. Right. We, we do uh, the same way you do. Uh, you, and, and, and we'll give you time to do so. But you need to do the work. We can't just keep saying, you know, we'll give you more time. We'll give give you more time as long as the time doesn't unreasonably restrict the rights of another party. And as long as things are moving forward, 
you know, we're there to help resolve things. We're there to speak in general terms without pushing either side, but in general terms about what the law uh, law shows based upon the evidence that's been shown to us. Um, but we need to keep these cases obviously moving forward. And I know that if you folks can keep, it's not always easy, but can keep the cases moving forward by preparation with your clients before you come in, um, it, it, it best serves your clients as well as all of your clients because it can open things up, open up your schedule to, to achieve more. Um, and, and that's where our ADR comes in very well yeah. also. Do any of you practice in family court, by the way? And do you have mediation in the family courts where you practice? Yes, that's Okay. Okay. Because that's for, for, for those of you who don't, do domestic violence um, and you have a mediation program, it's very similar to ADR. We often refer people where there is no issue of domestic violence to mediation and it serves the same purpose, especially when they're unrepresented, even when they are, because you'll find yourself as an attorney and I'm sure you can all attest to this, um, just going over the same issues over and over again with your client and sometimes it's hard to get them to come to the middle. And mediators obviously are trained to try to do that outside of domestic violence issues where it's not appropriate. So uh, we also, you know, uh, we, we do, as I've stated, we have some oversight over over the uh, the city courts and, and their uh, landlord, excuse me, the, the tenant dignity and uh, safe housing act, as, as well as, you know, codes violations and how they move forward here in the city of Albany and and landlord tenant matters. I think uh, somebody from Albany does does appear on landlord tenant matters once a week. Any, anyone? They're not here. Uh, do any of you do landlord tenant matters? All right. Um, well, well, here in Albany, I know in particular in in our uh, in our housing court, our city court, um, the the city has not too long ago, in the last year or so, they've received a, uh, I believe, a federal grant uh, which which allowed them to really pursue codes violations, and they they have pursued them. Uh, Assiduously, which is which is a, a a great thing. We actually got a little bit behind them. I'm sorry to say, in our city courts, uh, because the city uh, became just so you know they had a, a attorney or two who was assigned to it, and they were really doing a great job of pursuing it, which is what we all want. We don't want people to be living in in these horrible conditions. Uh, but once we became aware that we were falling behind, you know, the courts were we were able to shift somebody over and create a codes court to move things, move things forward. And, and I, you know, I, I, the codes court, um, there's an interplay also, as, as I'm sure you all know, with the uh, uh, landlord tenant or evictions matters, as I think Stephen, you know, referenced, you know, they're, they're, those often only come up, those sort of matters, the codes issues or the issues with regard to unsafe or improper living conditions when the eviction yeah, as as a defense at times to to lack of payment of rent or or insurance uh, excuse me or or um, eviction issues so um and it's it's happened even at times that you know they're proceeding on two track two different tracks because the the tenants don't know often or you know know how to bring up those codes issues or those unsafe issues so you know we've got you've got the city's department of 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 codes pursuing it on one track and you've got an eviction that you didn't even know about going on over here and often you don't see it. So that's again, why I think 
you know, I'm a fan of the, the idea of the Tenant Dignity and, and Safe Housing Act, particularly its uh, provisions which apply for summary applications and, and really a summary proceeding. So we're not waiting until a landlord's trying to kick somebody out to say, well, wait a minute, I've been withholding my rent because we had no heat for the whole uh, the whole winter. Um, so uh, we the courts will work to to move things along as quickly as possible and to address any any concerns that need to be addressed immediately as quickly as possible. We just need to know about it. We need to have those have those brought to our attention. We've we've created a new a new spot. We've got a judge who's doing only codes work here in Albany now. He comes in two days a week and he's doing a hundred cases a day. And I think uh, uh, again, not to keep referencing Stephen, but in, in that act, but I, I think it's had a great effect on on the housing. Um, I don't want to say market, but that you know that the housing uh, uh, inventory in the city of Albany, and it will continue to have a great effect on the housing inventory in, in the city of Albany. So, uh, Judge, I didn't know if you wanted to spoke, speak some more about the IDV parts and, and where we are on that, and we haven't spoken about uh, foreclosure matters uh, much yet either, but wh whichever one of you would like to speak about e either you one. You wanna go for the IDV? Sure. Okay. Do any of you currently practice in the IDV parts where you're, where you're from? Do you know, anybody know what IDV courts are? Okay. So for those who don't, the IDV stands for Integrated Domestic Violence Court. And what it's meant to do is to take a, a situation where, for example, there's uh, the police are called to a home, they find out that the husband assaulted the wife and they have enough evidence to arrest the husband, they arrest him, so he's got a criminal matter. Um, they, they advise often the mother, the wife, to go to family court and get perhaps an order of custody because they have children involved and perhaps an, even an order of protection. So now you've got a family where there's a criminal matter pending um, involving the father, a um, custody matter pending in family court. And let's say, for example, maybe they also were getting divorced and that's what led to the argument. Um, you've got three different courts, three different judges handling the same family with the same issues. The integrated court is meant to bring all of those cases in front of one judge so that they can be handled in a more effective way. And so the judge can provide the services that the, um, the survivors in this situation may need. Because what we would find often in family court is that we would have a, a litigant who would file for an order of protection and custody, and the respondent, who is the, the other person, would have a criminal matter pending in criminal court, and our hands would be tied because the criminal court judge would issue a very restrictive order of protection the, the litigants in family court were trying to give the, the father access to the children. But as you know, if they cannot communicate, you have to, it, it's very difficult to accomplish that. And so often we would have that issue. And on top of that, for some reason, even when the, even when the, the person was represented by the same office in family court and criminal court, the attorneys would not speak to one another. And I would ask the public defender in my court, what, what's going on with your client's criminal case? And they would say, well, I don't know. I'm going to have to reach out to the attorney. And then we come back to court. I don't know. I wasn't able to get a hold of my counterpart in the criminal court. It, it would be crazy. And as you can imagine, it would delay a whole host of things. Or perhaps the DA's office wasn't communicating. And I remember telling someone the other day, even as a judge, when I've reached out, to certain DA's offices, I don't get a response. And so I know if I'm not getting one, then the attorneys are not. It makes it a lot more difficult to resolve cases in family court when there's a criminal piece. 
in the integrated court, we still keep the matters separate. In other words, we don't just mash them all together. We still handle each part separately. But because you have one judge, I know what restrictions will work and will not work on an order of protection based on what's happening in the family court end. And we're all there in the courtroom at the same time. Um, I find it beneficial. And here in the third judicial district, we already had one in Skihari. We had one in Rensselaer, which was our most active, and uh, Columbia. We are just starting in Albany and Green, and I, I imagine perhaps extend to the remaining counties. Um, and the, the reaction is mixed. You know, there are attorneys out there who don't like integrated domestic violence courts for whatever reason. Some of the DAs don't necessarily like it, but it's up to the judge to decide. And it is a Supreme Court bench, by the way. So you have to be an acting or elected Supreme Court justice to do it. I find it very beneficial. Uh, being a family court judge and then doing the ITV, I see the benefits of it because it makes the resolution of these cases a lot easier. And those of you who practice in domestic violence uh, cases, you know how often you have to make provision because the family may not separate, especially if there are children involved. Sometimes the survivor needs the income from the other person. Whatever, the sometimes that is the safest solution because as we know, it's often when they flee that they wind up getting you know, murder or severely injured far worse than when they were in the situation itself, which is why it often keeps them together. But it, it helps when you're in front of a, a domestic violence part or an IDV court that you have one judge who knows what's going on. Um, and of course, you know, we handle everything from the divorce, if there is one, to the custody piece, child support. We handle spousal maintenance. We handle... Um, if there are no children, division of property, we do everything else that a matrimonial judge would do, everything else that a family court judge would do. Depending on the county you're in, you may or may not do Article 10s in the IDV part. In Albany, that's what we're going to do in the dis in this district. Where we also handle Article 10s, which are neglect and abuse cases for those of you who don't practice in family court, because if it arose out of the same incident, if um, DCYF charged both parents with neglect, and or abuse, it's best if the one judge hears it. And you know, often victims of domestic violence are uh, charged with neglect because the idea is instead of leaving, you kept the children in this situation that put them at risk of harm. Um, and whether or not it's fair, they do often get um, charged with, uh, with Article 10 abuse and neglect of others. And so I, I believe it's beneficial. I'm gonna say in Albany here, we don't have the legal aid representing litigants. And and I missed that because it was a time when they did um, because of the legal project who handles most of the domestic violence matters. Legal aid doesn't do it in Albany. I wish that you would maybe consider changing that policy. Um, and I'm looking over there. <laughs> That's unanimous on this panel. <laughs> I mean, you know, only because, you know, the legal, the, 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 the legal project can't represent everybody that comes through us. I mean, they just don't have the number of attorneys that's possible. And every now and then we do have clients that cannot, or for some reason aren't being represented. Yeah, yeah I, I wanted to ask you about that. So, and I, I know any of us can explain it, but maybe you could. There, there are certain circumstances where clients, even in the IDV court, are not represented. That's correct, because the statute does not allow it. For example, you can assign an, an attorney to an indigent litigant 
for a divorce to handle the custody matter and child support to be paid but, for under county law. Correct. Right. But Go you ahead. can't do that um, on the division of property end. And the law does not allow that. And so I've had cases where I've assigned an attorney to help the litigant with the custody, but then the litigant is self-represented for the division of property. And you can understand that in the domestic violence world, that would be an imbalance. Um, and so it's helpful when there are attorneys who can do everything because then we don't have to worry about assigning you. You take the case and you handle it from start to finish. But if there is no IDV case and they're in family court, as you all know, you can assign an attorney in support matters if, if there's a dispute over paternity and then it's only for the respondent. If there's a violation of an order of support because there's potential incarceration, again, only for the respondent. But you can't assign attorneys when they're trying to actually establish support. And I personally feel that that's the most important part because, and, and it's for both sides, because outside of domestic violence, you know, you can wind up paying a high amount of support that perhaps is not even fair, and then face violations because you can't afford to pay it. Um, and if you had an attorney, perhaps the attorney could assist in presenting your case and explaining to the magistrate or judge why this is unreasonable. I realize that I may be able to earn eighty, ninety thousand $90,000, but I haven't been able to get a job in that field since I got my degree. So why impute income to me at 80 or 90 when I haven't even earned that? I see the same thing on the matrimonial side. And it's um, the modest means individuals who don't meet the criteria for representation, yet they need to be represented because they don't understand. They, there's there's retirement that um, neither party understands how to split up. And um, it's a really difficult position for me and my staff to be in because there's so many questions and we can't represent either side. We used to have um, the ability to assign attorneys to those cases. We can't anymore. Um, at one point before the pandemic, we were looking to do a matrimonial help center. Um, that never came to fruition. So we're kind of stuck in this um, position where we're just trying our best to help make sure that people get the best um, outcomes that they can, but our hands are tied. Maybe our new supervising judge for the Supreme Court <laughs> can come up with a plan. <laughs> I think I'll pass that file over. Oh, thanks so much. Uh, but but as, as some of you may know, um, that it, it does create a real issue for attorneys who, who appear in front of us, because uh, as uh, Judge Rivera and Judge Reba said, you know, we can assign people uh, in, in contested custody matters in, in the Supreme Court, uh, and we can have them paid for pursuant to, to county law. But we can't that we so we literally, you know, we have to limit that in, in the order in which we assign people. This is what you're assigned for and this is what you're going to be paid for. And then attorneys can be stuck in the position of, OK, you know, they've got they've got a client who, uh, you know, may be signing away uh, valuable, valuable, you know, forget, for instance, Majowskis, right. uh, you know, rights to to a state pension, which a lot of people around here have, as, as you all know. Um, property rights or or, or support uh, support rights, whether whether um, particularly in maintenance, uh, matrimonial maintenance rights, and the attorneys that we assign are supposed to say, I I want to be clear, I don't represent you on that issue, and you know sometimes they they you know they will try to to help anyway, but it's but it's a difficult ethical spot to be in if you're an assigned paid attorney, and especially when cases settle. Where one side's represented, 
the other side isn't. You do the colloquy of you understand what you're entering into. You haven't had anything to drink. You 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 have voluntarily entered into this agreement with not being represented. We go through the whole thing. They agree, and then a month later, the party who was unrepresented comes back and says, "I realize that that's not a good settlement. I'm not happy with it. I want to go to trial." And then you know you have to tell them you have to file a motion to vacate. I mean, it's it's very difficult because. They think they understand, but then they go talk to somebody and a friend who tells them that that was not a good settlement and um, it's unbalanced. You know, one side was represented. What do we do? How do you solve that problem? You know, and I think, as you all know, sometimes they say to a judge, I understand because they don't want to appear ignorant. They don't want to sound dumb. They don't sometimes they don't know what to say. I mean, I had a litigant who I represented. We had a 30 minute conversation before we went in to see the judge. And when the judge asked him, did you have, did you speak to your attorney? He says, no. <laughs> and I looked at him like I had two heads. And so, <laughs> so the judge sent us out to talk. So when we went out, I said, well, why did you say no? He said, well, I was nervous. Yeah. And so, you know, you just never know if the person really understands because they look like they do, they're shaking their head or they say it on the record. Mm -hmm. but often they really don't. And so that's where attorneys are so helpful to us. That's, that's, that's a great, great thing. You know, I, I, um, uh, I oversee the, uh, the, the Albany County treatment court program for the felony courts for, for driving while intoxicated and drug, drug related offenses, as well as um, our veterans court. And so many times I've heard that from criminal defendants who, you know, are, are working their way through recovery and you, they actually describe how when, you know, they get up in front of a judge and, and their mind act, it actually goes blank. And I'm, I'm sure you've all seen it. And, and, you know, they're almost robotic in their responses and they're looking at their attorney. And do I say yes or no to this to this question? And, and you know, that preparation is, is such a big deal and the ability to give them that sense of ease because they've got one of you standing next to them. Right. And protecting them. Uh, it, it, it's such a big deal and it, it's such great work that you do, but it, that's a, that's a very real phenomenon. And, and we've all seen it over the years that we, we've been on the bench. Uh, it, it's, it's, I, I hate to even talk about it because it makes me, it, it's a very, it's a very, it's a very discomforting thing to, to think that people are saying it, you're doing everything right on the record and their rights are not being protected because their mind, you know, they're so nervous or whatever you want to, you know, their mind is so racing so much to be in front of or so uncomfortable that they, they're just saying whatever they, they think they should in order to not have people get angry at them. So, especially when English is not their first language. Right. And I'm sure you've had clients that spoke a different language, maybe came from a different country and they often are the ones who a lot, quite often don't want to seem like they are ignorant and maybe they just don't understand even you. Uh, but so imagine if they come to court and they're unrepresented. We'll ask, you know, but if they don't want an interpreter, we can't force one. And there have been times when I wish they had said yes, uh, but I realized that I can't force that on them. But uh, you can imagine how difficult it is for some people who don't speak English, even when you know that those who do have trouble understanding. And to that end, I mean, I've had cases where there's not a language barrier, but there might be an impairment, a mental impairment. And so I've had to uh, go through the, the Article 81 process or a good point of guardian ad litem to try to make sure that when we do get to settlement, 
that they understand it. And it's, and many times they have an attorney and then they also have the guardian ad litem just to, to have that balance. Um, but when they have the attorney, we can work together with the, the ad litem. And that's why it's so important that you, um, that you're, you're in our courts. And so we, we love to see you there because it makes it so much um, easier to make sure justice is served by having representation. And then when we have the cases with the pro se litigants, even if they just have an ad litem, it, just, there isn't that 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 um, protection that they really need. But our resources are limited and uh, we do the best that we can with what we have. Um, and we try to think outside the box when we can, but there's limitations. You know, and by the way, and this wasn't a topic that we necessarily were gonna talk about, but don't forget to take care of yourselves as counsel. I mean, I, I know what it's like. I didn't work for legal aid, but I was an alternate public defender. I know what it's like to have a lot of cases. I know what it's like to have late clients who yell and scream at you and say, I want a real lawyer. I, I you know, I, I've been there, done that. I know what it's like to have, you probably, I'm sorry, I created a nightmare. <laughs> there are people twitching. Flashbacks, I hit a nerve. You know, but I, so I've been there, right? I know what it's like. And especially if you, yes. That's okay. I now So uh, the interpreters that we use in the court system um, are, they're sought out by OCA, but sometimes they don't have the interpreter for a particular language, so they do get the per diem ones. And you're right, there are, there are circumstances where the quality of the representation or the interpretation is not good. Obviously, unless you speak that language, you don't always know that. Um, but we as judges, what we can do as judges is ask that the Office for Language Access review the proceedings and determine whether or not the interpretation was done properly and, they, and then take the action from there. But it's only when we think that perhaps it wasn't being done right. Like I just said an entire paragraph and you only interpreted one line. That's well, yes. I mean, we've all heard it. Right. All of us have heard it at some point. And, and I'm bilingual in Spanish, but even I know that it's gonna take more than just one sentence to interpret an entire paragraph 
no matter what the language was. And so you you can ask, um, do you understand and, and try to see and ascertain if the interpretation is being done right. But you're right, that can often be a problem. What happened after COVID, um, that that industry got impacted just like every other. And they there was a, a lot of people that decided they did not want to come back, took that as a means of retiring. So throughout the district, there have been attempts at hiring um, more interpreters to be in interpreters that work for the particular district or county for most of those languages. We, we often do this virtually because here in Albany, we did have a Spanish interpreter who just retired. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but for the most part, she could handle the courts in the district, but anybody else, or when we needed someone in addition to her, we would have to bring them in uh, virtually. Same thing with sign language. You know, um, it, it's, it's a slightly different rule with sign language because you sometimes need more than one even though you've only got one person because they have to switch after, after a certain amount of time and you may have experienced this. Uh, so it, it is an issue that the court system is working on. It is an issue that the Williams Commission has on our radar because it has to do with justice and access to justice and, and barriers that occur. Um, but we're working on it is what I can tell you. you know, but but as, as attorneys, if you have clients who don't speak English very well, please make sure that you request an interpreter and you should do it in advance of the proceeding so that the interpreter can be there at the time. Quite often, I have allowed interpreters to assist an attorney and their client in my courtroom because obviously you may not be able to bring an interpreter with you. And if there's a negotiation going on and the interpreter is virtual, you can't use the interpreter to help you with the negotiation. So I've often allowed that to happen in my courtroom, but as you can imagine, it delays our process. But as an attorney, you're representing this litigant. It's, I believe it's your responsibility to make sure that that need is met by making the request of the judge so that you're comfortable, your client understands, you know they understand, and you can get the best service. But that's when obviously you have someone who's represented. And so if Legal Aid can come back to Albany, please. Yes. It's more for Legal Aid, but that raised back again. And one of the things that we have been working on with our staff is when we have attorneys or clients of color um, in the moment and work with the variants, um, negotiating with a landlord attorney or a non-representative party on the other side, and they have a negative experience. Subject to microaggression or macroaggression, what to do in the moment when you are trying to respond to that. Um, I was wondering if you had any perspective as to what would be appropriate, either as an advocate at that time, if it is a current challenge, I mean, bring it to the judge's attention, um, and, and what you would like to see us doing to ensure that all of those litigants are you know, comfortable and uh, well, uh, do you mind if I go briefly yeah, first? Uh, I, I mean, I would always want to know. I, I would want to know immediately. I, we, we've, I've, I've, I've heard, it. I've been told, you know, and, and we've seen it happen. And, and we would want to know, and we would want to be able to address it immediately. Uh, you know, and, and there, there, there would be, be no such thing, just speaking broadly, as a bad time to come and say that. Uh, and and we'd, we'd address it, and we'd address it in, in a way um, 
that that would we would hope not impact the negotiations or anybody's anybody's rights. But uh, it, it, there's no such thing as a bad time to bring that up. But but uh, it, Judge Judge Reba or Judge yeah. Rivera, I agree. What you what you I would definitely want to know, and I think it's important if it's the attorney who's experiencing it for for the, the attorney to let me know, so that way we can process it and make sure we can get to the settlement or whatever the issues are, because I know that attorney wants to, is there for a reason. But if there's something that's happening, we need to deal with that because that's that's imperative before we can get to rolling up our sleeves and and getting to work. So um, I think, you know, asking to speak with the judge privately uh, would make sense. Um, it's not the type of thing you want to put on the record. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm very accessible. And um, I would hope that the the attorneys would know that I would I would listen and, and be fair and try to help them resolve whatever the issues are. I mean, I've had I've had things happen that are not race based, but there was an issue with um, an attorney who felt that the it was a female who felt like the male attorney was aggressive and 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 being negative and saying things that were disparaging. And I was able to to deal with that and um in a way that allowed us to continue, but make sure that that it didn't happen again and that I was aware of it. So um you know, I think it's important for people to 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 be comfortable and, and civility. That's something that we're we've lost a little bit. I don't know if it's after the pandemic, people have gone to a bad place, but I find that 2023 has been a year where a lot of the attorneys aren't aren't settling as well. They're not getting along as well. So, you know, it's really important to remember why we became lawyers and, you know, make sure that it's not, it's the clients that, that are important when you're in the courtroom, but sometimes it's the attorneys, two of them who just don't like each other, you know, will just get in the way of resolving those issues. So I feel like being a, a judge is also like being a social worker. And so at many times I have to make sure that I kind of like calm down the situation, you know, deal with difficult personalities and, um, but I'm not gonna minimize it. So if it's, if it's a racial issue or if it's um, sexism, that's a serious matter. And um, at times you have to, I, I might need to report something, but um, but I do deal with it privately and make sure that that the party feels comfortable. You know, to add, look at that? I'm sorry, I, go ahead. I was gonna say to add to that, it, in a situation where it's your client that's experiencing it and it's not in the courtroom itself or in front of the judge, you may also wanna find out from your client if they want you to take some action because they may not want that. And you don't want your relationship with your client to be hampered based on that. You may be able to say something, especially if it's a conference and it's coming from the other side. In the moment, you can say something that's inappropriate. But whether or not you bring it to the judge, if it didn't happen in front of the judge, you may want to ask your client, are you okay with this? Because I'm ready to do that for you. That was unacceptable. It shouldn't happen. It should not have happened. And you take it from there. Uh, because, you know, everyone doesn't feel comfortable making that a, an issue. Uh, and and same thing with sexism, especially as lawyers, and that's part of what I was saying before, protecting yourself. And, and as you know, it happens more with women than it does with men. But if you're being treated in a way that you see male attorneys don't treat other male attorneys, say something. I, I'm sensitive to that, so I pay attention to it. I try to set the standard. I don't call any attorney, even when I know them on a personal basis, by their first name. I don't call any litigant by their first name. I always address them as Mr. or Ms., or if they give me a different pronoun, I use the pronoun that they give me. I set the standard as a judge, but that doesn't mean that attorneys don't still go astray. And I handle it when it happens in front of me. But if an attorney says something, I will do it. You know, we can report attorneys just like you can. 
And there are situations where we should and, and probably even must, but it's a little tricky when the other person is not an attorney and it's a litigant. Because in those kinds of instances, the judge, as far as reporting, the, judge, the judge's hands are tied. And I've had those situations as well. I mean, you still have to handle it, but you can't do it in the same way that you would with an attorney. But I, I would always ask your client if it didn't happen in the presence of the judge, this is what I'm prepared to do for you. Are you okay with that? Do you want me to let it go? Uh, but then address it with the other party at the moment. I think I think you should be assigned to Albany County. <laughs> <laughs> we would love you to come to our court. <laughs> yeah. It is what it is. That's 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 a that's a, that's a great and very very difficult point that, that you raise and, and you know sometimes as as judges we we're in a a, a strange position because you know if, if often there there's there's a collegiality and I'm not talking about collegiality that excludes you I'm mean, talking about generally collegiality in, in you know here in Albany and that's a good thing between attorneys and and it's often the case in the communities that you practice in and I hope you are treated the same way everybody else is and if you're not you should you should bring it up but you know if 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 collegiality means not getting the case done and bringing your client back time and again I'm just going to say it the judge is not doing their job they aren't you you have to bring that to the judge's attention and if they're not doing their job then they they we you know we're we're not up on Mount Olympus. We 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 need to be called out on it. And, and, and you know what you just said. You know we we've, we've seen it. And you know sometimes when there's been judges in Albany who who were well known for saying you know what two lawyers had come in on a matrimonial and you know somebody'd say, well judge you know I didn't get all this done just like you say right and and, and the other lawyer would say oh boy we know we were all ready but okay whatever because of the collegiality. That's not doing your job for your client, as you know, and it, and it's and it's not doing, you know, it's hurting the 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 services you can provide to others too, because you've wasted your time in addition to making your client's life uh, miserable for another month month and a half. And but you know sometimes judges, you know, they they take action on that, and suddenly every lawyer in town is saying, oh, that you know. That, that jerk, you know, uh, <laughs> is holding my feet to the fire, it, it, particularly if judges will say, I'm not going to allow this. I don't care what you would you want, but that is judge's job. And, and you shouldn't be afraid, as I said, 
you know, people at times, even now, uh, they're less so than the old days when I was young, but, but even now uh, are afraid to say anything to a judge about a granted adjournment or afraid to argue against it. But but they shouldn't be, and, and, and we should be open to the issue. And if it if it's continually an issue, you know, there are avenues that you can you can pursue. And nobody wants to get into a war with the judge in their county. I understand it. But uh, but uh, but but to, to you know to put it that way, you know, it, 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 I mean, it, it hurts me to hear you say that, and I I know it hurts Judge Rivera and Judge Reba too to hear that that happens, and we see it too. Um, so to put it that way, I think you could. I would hope that you could could have an effect on doing it. And and if I can say anything, which isn't much, it's it's don't be afraid to bring it up because we're we're not we're far from being too too good to hear it, and and, and it'll have an effect eventually. So I'm glad you brought it up, though. So make sure that you're making a record, right? Make sure you are, mm -hmm. um, and and ask, you know, for the judge to issue that temporary order every time, or the magistrate every time you go back. But I think at a certain point you should request a hearing, yeah. demand a hearing. Right? This is what is happening to my client right. because of this adjournment. Right. This this specifically is what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um, so I do have. Yeah, I, 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 yeah, we, we are at time. Sorry. Um, is there are there any other questions? We're two in there, sir. <laughs> I just it's kind of a follow up on the question. And Judge Connolly, you said that you oversee the city of what's probably ahead. What are the big decisions we have? Uh, I work on uh, managing attorney at the latest society, supervised lawyers, and handling uh, evictions and um, justice for you. And one of the biggest issues we have, especially with those sad acts that you were on the front of the Particularly when you're when you're when you're providing advice, but you're not not appearing. I I I, I do hear what you're saying. Uh, if, if if you have, you know, if you're satisfied and you sound very satisfied with the idea that you understand that this is happening, uh, um, okay. yeah, 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 I get it. Uh, uh, <laughs> you know, um, a letter to the court. Uh, you know, listen, we're all lawyers here, right? Some of we some of us were judges, but we're all lawyers. You know, documented. Uh, concerns, you know, uh, put it in a in a courteous and appropriate way. Uh, I, I, believe me, they have it. They have an effect on me. They've had an effect on me since the day I became a lawyer. And, and the, the 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 more experienced I became, the more the more an effect that it's had on me. So documenting the concern, and you know, there each uh, district has a district administrative judge and a supervising judge for the city courts, and uh, you know. You know, I don't, I don't want to, uh, you know, 
short of going to you know to um, the the uh, judicial ethics uh, committee, you know, uh, uh, th there is responsibilities that both the supervising judges for the city courts as well as the administrative judges for each district, uh, or the supervising judges for the family courts or the supreme courts. Excuse me, I don't mean to wave my hand. <laughs> uh, that that we have uh, that can include uh, giving guidance or even in you know some cases, and I, I won't call it discipline, but giving, giving, uh, you know, have, having um, very plain conversations about cons uh, uh, concerns that have been expressed. It, it can be done. On, on your question. So if the judge isn't following the law, do you ever, is, what's the appellate process? Because if they're not following the law, then how, how is that decision standing? Well, they're they're appearing. Uh, they're they're only giving advice. But I mean, but if the judge ultimately writes that it, it, yeah, if you could. Like, I don't know if you're going to say the words. That can't be the law council. But we need resolution. They need to get out. Well, we're far from perfect. That's a well, I will tell you. The client is impressed. Of course. You know what I mean? So the next time, I have to ask the client. You know, this doesn't have to be written. That's that's disappointing to hear. It's very disappointing to hear. Thank you for speaking plainly. Yeah, yeah but, 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 but Charlie is right. You know, we every single district has a supervising judge and an administrative judge, and you should send a letter saying this is a concern that we have especially if you're the managing attorney in your office. This is a concern that we've seen. You don't necessarily have to name the judge, but you can say, this is what keeps happening. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, this is the result. Hopefully you'll have an administrative judge or a supervising judge who will react to that. I can tell you- You will, would. they're, they're, they're very responsible people. If I, if I got a letter like that, I'd be instantly on it with, with our city court supervising judge. If I got a letter about family court, Judge Rivera and I would be on it together and the same for Supreme Court, Judge Reba and I would. There was no way a, a documented a concern like that would not be addressed. It's just not, it wouldn't happen. And I, I and I know uh, all of the administrative judges in, in upstate New York and that, that uh, the areas we have covered. There, there's not one of them that wouldn't respond to that. Um, uh, so but we also have an office of access to justice. Mm -hmm. You know, you can always reach out to the Williams Commission because these are the kinds of issues. You know, Williams Commission is independent. Um, even though the co-chairs, myself and my co-chair, were both judges, mm -hmm. it's an independent commission. Those are the kinds of issues that can be addressed in that way. Uh, and so there, there are things you can do if you want to um, and not directly deal with that particular judge. Mm -hmm. Thank you. You're welcome. That was fantastic. Thank you to our uh, view from the bench panelists. Thank you for the time this morning. Thank you so, so, so much. Thank you for having me. We are going to just switch over our panels.
There is um, coffee service and snackies in the hallway. Please kind of make yourselves comfortable. Um, you know, we were trying to uh, make sure we maximized CLE credit for time spent here. So we really kind of just flow right into the next um, panel. But let me introduce our next panelist. We have the Ethics Update Professional Standards with Allison Cohn with the Attorney Grievance Committee of the New York State Supreme Court Third JD and Noel Mendez, who is also on the Attorney Grievance Committee, New York State Supreme Court Third JD. And uh, Noel and I used to work in the Senate together as well. So. Uh, really nice to see you. Thanks for coming in. And Allison, nice to meet you. Thanks, everyone, for being here today. Thanks for having us. Um, we're going to keep it kind of simple for the last hour. Um, I'm going to talk about social media ethics and how it relates to practice law. Oh, um, yes, sorry. Sorry about that. I hope that's better. Um, so social media, how many people here have social media accounts, platforms? I, I certainly do. There's Facebook, there's Twitter, there's Instagram, there's a whole host of them, and we all use them for different reasons. Um, a lot of people uh, want just the social connections. They want to put up pictures of their kids' first day of school. A lot of people want to you know, connect with people from high school. Other people want to get their news and information from these different sources. Um, some people like to lurk. They just want to follow people and not comment on it. Some people are prolific posters, and they will post everything that comes to their mind. Um, these are all things that you need to be concerned about in your practice of law and in your everyday life. Um, even though you use your social media purely for personal reasons, let's say, most, most lawyers do use it only for personal reasons. Some lawyers will use it for legal advertising, but by, by and large, it's for your personal conduct. But I will tell you that the Attorney Grievance Committee does have the jurisdiction to review and determine complaints involving um, complaints against attorneys for their personal conduct. Mm -hmm. Um, whether it's social media related or any other kind of personal conduct, if it adversely reflects on your fitness as a lawyer or somebody gets um, concerned about what you're saying or posting or doing, they can file a complaint with us. Um, so for the purposes of attorney discipline, the attorney disciplinary rules, specifically uh, 1240.2 sub A, defines professional misconduct as a violation of the rules of professional conduct, including a violation of any rule or announced standard of the appellate division governing the personal or professional conduct of attorneys. Um, and that shall constitute professional misconduct within the meaning of the judiciary law. So we do have that jurisdiction and set forth very clearly. Um, there's three principal rules of professional conduct that concern an attorney's private conduct. Um, and that would be rule 8.4B, 8.4C, and 8.4H. 
Um, 8.4b prohibits an attorney from engaging in illegal conduct that adversely reflects on the lawyer's honesty, trustworthiness, or fitness as an attorney. Um, it doesn't matter whether the illegal conduct is committed within the practice of law as an attorney or whether you're, you know, you, you did it on your off hours. Um, and then the an issue that's been greatly debated is what is illegal conduct? And do you require a criminal conviction before you are found to have engaged in illegal conduct for the purposes of attorney discipline? And I will tell you that, um, no, you don't need a criminal conviction. So if, if we get enough information that you have actually engaged in illegal conduct, let's say you were pulled over for a DWI um, and you pled it down to a DWAI, which becomes uh, a violation. If, if we have evidence that you blew a BAC over the legal limit and you were operating a motor vehicle under the uh, influence of alcohol, we can certainly discipline you for that. So you don't need the criminal conviction. Um, the, the comments to rule 8.4b suggest that um, the most common it, it, most common illegal conduct that we will find are, are violence, you know, domestic violence, crimes, um, assault, uh, disorderly conduct, um, dishonesty, fraud, breach of trust, or serious interference with the administration of justice. So, um, like I said, the most common complaints that we see regarding uh, illegal conduct and criminal convictions is DWI and substance abuse cases by attorneys. There's also rule 8.4C, which prohibits an attorney from engaging in dishonesty, fraud, deceit, or misrepresentation. Um, 8.4H uh, prescribes and prevents an attorney from engaging in any other conduct that adversely reflects on the lawyer's fitness as a lawyer. So that's a catch-all um, and is intentionally vague. It's very broad and we can use that rule just uh, as a standalone rule violation or it can be coupled with another rule violation, whether it's illegal conduct, uh, criminal conviction. Um, but that's where it gets a little bit murky because people wonder, you know, why should I be disciplined for my personal conduct? If I have nothing to do with it, it has nothing to do with a client, a client representation, I'm not harming um, a client, why does the attorney grievance committee have jurisdiction over us? Um, we find that uh, the social media posts are something that falls under the 8.4H violation. Um, if, if it's an inappropriate post and it comes to our attention, we will investigate it. Um, so th there's that. Um, another rule to keep in mind is 8.2a, a lawyer shall not make a false statement of fact concerning qualifications, conduct, or integrity of a judge or other uh, adjudic adjudicative officer or candidate for election. So if you want to post something about a judge that you don't like the judge, you don't like what they're doing, you don't like their rulings or whatever, that is certainly fodder for us to look at if it comes to our attention. Um, so with that, I asked the question before and I don't think I really answered it. Why should an attorney's personal conduct be subject to attorney discipline or disciplinary review? And that's because first and foremost, lawyers have a duty to uphold the law at all times. We are all officers of the court, the legal system. And as officers of the court, we have an obligation to conduct ourselves in a matter uh, equal to the dignity of that of a court official. Uh, lawyers' personal conduct can also adversely reflect on the integrity of the legal profession and uh, on the reputation of the bar in the, in the eyes of the public. Um, it is our obligation as attorneys to maintain the good reputation of the bar, and that comes with the privilege of practicing law. Um, the central purpose of the attorney disciplinary system is to um, deter future conduct from being deter future misconduct from being committed by other attorneys. Um, it is to protect the public, and it is also uh, to preserve the reputation of the bar. Um, so at that point, if, if a social media post comes to our attention, we will investigate it. And I will tell you that we do not surf the net looking for 
things to you know investigate. Um, but I will tell you that clients uh, and third parties will find something, whether they want to or not, intentionally or not, and they will bring it to our attention. Um, sometimes we've had we've had uh, complaints about social media posts from clients that were looking to contact their attorney. They couldn't reach them by phone. They couldn't find their office, whatever it is. So they go onto social media to look for you know, some kind of a contact information. And then they see something that the attorney posted that just greatly offends them and they report it to us. Uh, so when we get complaints like that, we generally consider them a form of communication. It's an attorney and it, it, it's an attorney's um, method of communicating with the public, let's just say. And at that point, we also look at, you know, did the post have any relationship to the attorney's practice of law? Does it refer to a client? Does it refer to a pending matter? Does it refer to a judge or a particular court? We look at what the content of the post actually is. We look at who the audience or the recipient of the information was. And we look at what was the purpose of the communication. We will also consider whether or not the um, attorney that we're looking at has a prior disciplinary history. And if that prior, prior disciplinary history has anything to do with being counseled about, you know, don't make inappropriate posts. If it has anything to do, if they're related, it'll potentially exacerbate the level of discipline that they could possibly receive. Um, so with that background, we uh, we have four case scenarios that are in your materials. These are all real cases. Um, the fact patterns are, are very accurate and they've been considered by the committee and we just wanna kind of go through them. And if any time you wanna participate or have a question or um, a concern, you know, please raise it. Um, but in, so with the first case, case A, we received a complaint from a, a complainant that a respondent had posted on a closed media site. So it was a, 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 a platform that you had to be invited to join. It wasn't Facebook. And uh, the, the report was that they were posting uncivil and um, comments that were of uh, a threatening nature and the person didn't like it. So we, we laid out the post that we received uh, in some in substance in your materials. Um, and the post was made by the attorney in response to a number of children that were riding in the middle of the road in her neighborhood on these electric scooters. And she was very unhappy. And so you will see that in response to two particular people, the attorney said, you know, Mr. Smith, as a driver, I will honk, yell, and, and hit someone with my car if I decide that those kids or even you are riding recklessly. Um, she threatens another person. And then she says, I am a lawyer and I understand that you do not control the roads for these kids. Be aware, I will ride right up your asses and drive you all off the road. So we get this post. We don't get the whole threat, but we take it up with the attorney. And, um, you know, you can clearly see that this, these posts have nothing to do with her practice of law. Um, it's unrelated to any case. It is unrelated to any client. It is completely private. It, again, the public can't see this. Um, but we, we took it up with her. We said, you know, what happened? And she said, no, I admit, this is not a courteous discourse. I shouldn't have said these things. Um, but the thread was po it started by somebody else. I didn't start this. And so then of course we get the full thread and you can see that these people don't like each other, have never liked each other and they're just going at it. And the complainant is equally discourteous and nasty. So you don't see that side of it. And that's that's a cautionary tale too, is that when we get the complaints, we don't get the full picture. So we want to develop that for sure. But she said, you know, I shouldn't have said that. That was wrong. Um, I was frustrated. It's COVID. I'm stressed out. I've got chronic health conditions. It doesn't matter, but you know, this is my state of mind. I shouldn't have said it. And she apologized, um, and, and that's fine. I mean, we want to we want to know that. And um, so she, you know, we debated it. The committee is made up of 
um, mostly attorneys, there's three non-attorneys, and it was subject of considerable debate. But what really got to the committee was the fact that she identified herself as an attorney. It was threatening language that she used. She threatened to run people over, but she said, I am an attorney. So that lent this, another element to this whole thing. And the committee did not like that. So she didn't have a prior disciplinary history. So what we did was they issued a letter of advisement, which is not professional discipline, but it's a letter of comment. And we told her, you know, we, we found that you did not violate yet, but you're coming close to violating 8.4H, engaging in conduct that adversely reflects on your fitness as a lawyer. And we really do caution you about this. Um, and so she received that, that letter and it's now, like I said, it's not discipline, but it remains in her file. So if she's gonna get, you know, if we have future complaints about her, we can look at the, the prior history and see what she's been disciplined for. Um, the committee was, you know, like I said, grateful that there was no comments about a judge or a case or anything like that. Um, so that, that, that was the first case and that's, it's mild, but it was something that we're concerned about. Again, the reputation of the bar is going to you know, be of utmost concern to us. So I'm going to handle the next three cases. Mm -hmm. Um, and I would like some audience participation <laughs> and I will be calling on people. Uh, but I know some people here. It's a couple. It's a couple. I'm looking at one of the All right. So case B, which you could also have in your materials. Oh, okay. Can you hear me now? Perfect. So oh, you missed the best. They missed the best part. Sorry. It was funny. It was great. Anyway. So uh, case B, I'm going to set the stage a little bit. There's several parties, a lot of moving parts. Um, so on the one side, you have uh, John. We're going to call him John. And then on the other side, you have Brittany. Uh, in John's camp, so to speak, you have his father and John's significant other. And then in the other camp, you have Brittany and Brittany's mother, who is the respondent in this case. So John and Brittany are married. They have a child together, uh, but unfortunately the marriage just broke down and it came to the point that Brittany decided to file for custody of their child. And she also wanted to file some family offense petitions against John, right? The mother, was representing Brittany in this case. Throughout the course of all these proceedings, the mother had found a certificate of conviction relating to John's father, the dad, right? For a very, very serious crime that occurred many years ago, but Brittany did not know about the crime. The mother had also been going back and forth with John's father's significant other, right? Are you, are you still with me? <laughs> I can start over. <laughs> Yes, Brittany, yeah. Yeah, so, okay, we could start. So like I said, John, right, and Brittany. John's dad, we'll call him dad, okay? And then significant other, that's dad, right? Dad, significant other, and then Brittany and then mom. We're gonna just call the respondent attorney in this case, mom, okay? So Brittany and John had this problem and so she filed the petitions and the mom, the attorney, had found the certificate of conviction for dad, right? For a very, very bad crime that Brittany did not know about, okay? The mother had also been going back and forth with dad's significant other, right? On social media, in this case, it was Facebook and it was public, if I remember. Mm -hmm. uh, so, and the language was very threatening, unprofessional, there were curses, and uh, there were threats of posting this sensitive information for the dad Again, you know, it's a certificate, a certificate of conviction, which is, you know, public, right? So she, the mother threatened and ultimately posted 
the certificate on Facebook, right? Uh, what ended up happening for the dad was that he uh, had sort of limited vis supervised visitation with the grandchild, right? Mm -hmm. So those were the facts that were presented, right? When the complainants in this case, you know, in the case was John, the dad and a significant other, right? So what was mom's uh, uh, response to all of this? Well, mom denied harassing John's father. And she had also mentioned that the document was public, right? So this is my first question to all of you. What do you think the committee sort of considered or maybe put it differently, right? If you're the committee, what are some things that you would consider in this case, if it was presented to you as a grievance? Nothing? I'm gonna start calling. Bob? <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Okay, so obviously the first thing that they considered was the fact that it was social media, Facebook, right? It was public, right? Another thing was that it was a custody dispute, right? And they also noted for the fact that, you know, the attorney involved was the mother. She was representing her daughter. So this wasn't just private conduct at this point, right? Because she's an attorney, she's in court, the matter's proceeding, and the certificate of conviction is relative to the custody portion as it relates to the dad, right? So they looked at the content of the post as well as the audience who was going to be looking at it. So, right, you mentioned the, uh, Allison mentioned the different kinds of things, right? So you can get, a case can be dismissed, uh, you can receive a, a letter of, of advisement or you can be admonished. Would anyone like to take a guess as to what resulted in this case? Nothing? Admonishment? And you would be correct and you win absolutely nothing, but you know, thank you. No, but they were admonished, right? For the conduct. So in addition to finding what you know, Allison mentioned, rule 8.4H, right? So in addition to finding a violation for that, which is again, engaging in conduct that adversely reflects on the lawyer's fitness as a lawyer, a lot of lawyers there, but you get what I'm saying, right? And then they also found a violation for another rule, 4.4A, which is while representing a client using means that have no substantial purpose other than to embarrass or harm a third person, right? So in this particular case, the committee and the admonishment that the attorney received, right, they determined that the mother's conduct was not in accordance with the high standards imposed on members of the bar. In this case, the threatening and unprofessional language while representing someone in legal proceedings, right? With respect to the other one, it was, you know, you disseminated the, he, right, she disseminated the certificate of conviction again on Facebook, uh, and that had no substantial purpose other than to embarrass and harm John's dad. Okay. So in that case, he, you know, the attorney was admonished. Any questions? Oh, I'm at a higher level of discipline, or was a higher level of discipline considered based on the fact that apparently the respondent was complete in complete denial that they had done anything wrong. Their response is just self-justification. It seems that disseminating that kind of information on public media by an attorney who's actually um, representing one of the parties and then denying that he or she did anything wrong seems to be an aggravating factor. Is that, I mean, the committee does consider that. Correct. Uh -huh. so, considering still an admonishment of an Well, so in terms of private discipline, we have the 
the, the right to dismissal. There's a letter of advisement, which again, is not discipline, and then there's the admonition. And admonition can be delivered orally by the chairperson, um, but that all remains private. The next level up would be, you know, to bring a disciplinary proceeding against her and bring it for her in this case, and uh, bring it to the appellate division and then ask them for either a censure, suspension or disbarment. So while her denials or her, her protestations that she did nothing wrong um, are an aggravating factor, she also pointed to the fact that the criminal conviction, the certificate of criminal conviction was a public document already. So she wasn't otherwise disclosing something that was confidential. Um, so the committee looked at that. I don't believe she had a prior disciplinary history. So we look at that. Um, there was there was considerable debate, but to take it to a, a public disciplinary level wasn't deemed necessary by the, the committee at that point. So can I follow up? If the respondent had made um, a full apology and um, expressed uh, remorse, recognition um, that her conduct was inappropriate, would the committee have uh, considered a lower level of discipline, what the letter of advisement, I guess? I mean, it certainly would have helped her case to some degree, but would they have dropped it to a letter of advisement? Probably not only because of the 4.4 a violation as well. There was no substantial purpose other than to harass and embarrass. Um, so once that, I mean, she she violated that rule. There was no question. So generally an advisement is, you know, you're coming close to violating a rule. We want to call your attention to the rule so you can um, tailor your conduct accordingly and, 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 and avoid future missteps. That's really what the advisement is for. Um, and again, mitigating factors do play into that. But um, in this case, they probably would have stayed at the ad admonition if I had to guess. Okay. Uh, case C, promise easier. Fewer parties involved. Mm -hmm. So, uh, all right. So, case C, also in your materials. So, mother and father are going back and forth on a custody matter. Uh, mom lives downstate. Uh, father lives upstate. The respondent in this case represents the father, right? Throughout the course of all of that, mother found on social media, this time also Facebook, uh, uh, a post where respondent attorney, right, had made some comments about his experiences in the downstate court system. I'm not gonna, I'm sorry. <laughs> That's very specific. Uh, look, I'm from New York City and I actually did do a case down there a long time. I can, you know, anyway, I'm not gonna get into it. It's, it's, it's experience. Anyway, so I'm gonna read just a part of the, uh, 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 of what was posted you can read the rest, right? So he says, what a day. I have never experienced such a battle with the downstate courts than I did today. All I wanted to do was file a petition with the court. After trying to get instructions by phone with the downstate court, I was forced to drive downstate and bring my client with me and away from his job for a day to file the petition in person. The only way it will be accept accepted, et cetera, et cetera. I'm sure there's a lot. There's a lot more stuff there. Read it, but I don't want to just read that to you. So, you know, that was what the mother found. And that was what, you know, the complaint was about. And so the respondent, right? You, so they, someone files a complaint, someone has to file a response, right? So of the attorney. So in their response, the respondent had argued that, you know, he just, you know, he, he empathized with the client situation. Uh, he understood that the father was burdened because of the travel downstate. Uh, he made he made note that he did not include any information concerning the identity of the parties. He rarely posts on Facebook, and he just wanted to essentially express frustration 
for the local procedures in the downstate courts. And I think that he, they really took issue, right, if I, if I remember correctly, with the clerks. Mm -hmm. right. He did, yes. Right, but the attorney, yeah. Uh, so I would like to open this up again. So what factors do you think the committee looked at? Or again, if you were the committee, what are some things that you would think of? Let's start with the simple one, right? Facebook, social media post, it was public. Anything else? Right. Maybe the fact that it was, you know, within the context of a pending case. Uh, but, you know, they also discovered right through the you know review process and through investigation that there were no identifying details in the post about the litigants. There was no specificity about the matter. And the committee kind of understood that the attorney was frustrated and wanted to vent. Um, so, you know, he wanted to let his colleagues know. Right. I mean, you know, I mean, I don't do social media, but. People do do that, right? You go on Facebook and say, oh, I had a bad day, right? Um, in hindsight, I believe he had acknowledged that he should not have posted it, right? And, and again, there were no client confidences disclosed. And a very important factor, I think, uh, was that there was no threatening or vulgar language. So again, right, if you have, oh, you have a question? Can you just said downstate courts in general? Yes, downstate courts in general. So, um, so like I said, right, so no threatening or vulgar language. So... Again, having the three things, right? A case can be dismissed. You can receive a letter of advisement uh, or you can be admonished. What do you think happened in this case? I don't know, so what, what would the folks to violate and provide? Again, it's at 8.4H where it's that catch-all where it's you're engaging in conduct that adversely reflects as your fitness as a lawyer. So that can that that's as broad as it can be. That's but that's the rule that would have been. So what? So what results? Yep, the matter was in fact dismissed, right? And for those factors that we that we just discussed, right? And there was a case that the committee had considered in there. It was a 1973 case. Uh, Appellate Division v. Erdman, the citation to which, if anyone is taking notes, is 33NY2D559. And um, basically, I'm just going to read the quote from the case, right? Without more isolated instances of disrespect for the law, judges and courts expressed by vulgar and insulting words or other incivility uttered, written, or committed outside the precincts of a court are not subject to professional discipline, right? So that's a, a bookend. Um, that right. that case is interesting because it was a lawyer downstate, again, uh, who gave an interview to Playboy and went after the appellate, the second department appellate division judges and was horrible to them. I mean, called them all sorts of names in this article, um, ranted about the way they operated their court. And in Erdman, they decided, all right, you know, this is one instance, you weren't in court uttering those words. Um, because there are other rules that are implicated if, if you're going to comment on a judge or another party and you're in the confines of the courthouse or a, a case in particular, you're in the in, in the uh, in a trial, um, your words, you're held to a higher standard and your words are going to matter. So if you call a judge a crook or you call the, you know, you um, cast aspersions on their credibility or whatever, you're going to find yourself in hot water with us under a different set of rules entirely. But in this case, the guy just gave an interview he was spouting off. I mean, it was terrible. But in this case, the Court of Appeal said, fine, it wasn't said in the context of litigation. It was said outside the courthouse. You know, he's entitled to his First Amendment rights to free speech. And we're going to, you know, dismiss the case against him. So that, that's a very interesting case. Erdman, I would recommend to anyone if they just want to see. I mean, the article was crazy. Um, but 
that that's what the court the committee looks at the case law too you know you you, you find as close a fact pattern as you can get and say all right well where does this fit in and in this case we we landed on Erdman and we said all right you know he, he did this once he, it was inappropriate and he knew he shouldn't do it again he probably won't ever do it again so we dismissed it well this case he's not disparaging the judge or the court he's talking about clerical staff who are who are not lawyers or judges correct and that was very compelling to the committee because I heard other lawyers disparage clerical staff in one county or another. Yeah, I mean, it, it, again, we look at what what was the what was said in the post, what was the purpose of the post, who was being criticized in the post, what language is used in the post, but it it is all part of the basket of ingredients that the committee looks at. So in this case, they they said no. You know he's allowed to vent, he's, and the attorney also said, you know, I'm I'm putting this post out there so my fellow colleagues can understand what it is to practice down there. If you're going to go into this jurisdiction, you know, this is what you're going to face, and so that was his motivation for posting it. So again, that factors into it also. Mike, is it about letter of advice so a letter of advisement is not discipline. It is a, a letter of comment, but it is maintained in the attorney's file. So there's no finding of professional misconduct when you get the letter of advisement, but it does. you're coming close. We're telling you if you do it again under the same facts or similar facts, you know, you could potentially be facing an admonition at that point. Um, so it, there's a little bit of a progressive discipline approach to things. So again, it's not discipline, but it will be maintained in the file and we will always see it. So in other words, if there's any more, it's considered it is weighed and it's not so much what would happen i mean if, if they got a letter of advisement for a social media post and then the next complaint against them comes before us because they're stealing from their escrow account you know we do look to the prior discipline but they're unrelated discipline so you're going to have the discipline imposed on the escrow account violations, you know, almost separate and apart. Question up here in the back. Yep. Uh, so my question is it's kind of related to the presentation. The person posted the attorney's post, but if that account was private, one, two, what if the, uh, the, the person who's complaining is complaining to harass the attorney? I'm sorry, I missed the second part. It was the complainant. Well, we do see. Yes. So the question is one, if the um, attorney who made the post had kept his account private, would that have made a difference? If I understand the question. And two, um, what if the complainant is just filing the complaint against the attorney to harass the attorney? Um, first, if the complainant had, I'm sorry, the respondent had made his Facebook account private, we probably wouldn't have known about it. So, I mean, that's the number one thing to do is because he had it open to anyone to see, that was problematic for the committee. If he made it private so that it was just his universe of friends that could comment or see it, that probably would have never even gotten to our attention. Um, so that is important. I think everyone should put the privacy settings on um, their social media accounts. Um, secondly, uh, the committee is very well aware that we can be used by complainants sometimes for the purposes of harassing an attorney, and we don't count countenance that. Um, 
so we would look at that. Um, in this particular case, I don't think that was the situation. Um, but we are aware. I mean, like in the first case I talked about, they only gave us the snapshot of what the attorney said. They didn't give us the whole thread and they were the ones who started it. And they kept going after her and to the point that they said, you know what, she's an attorney. Here's her bar number. Everyone filed complaints against her because now we're, we're unhappy with her. You know, we're going to take her license away. That doesn't, I mean, that, that's not compelling to us. I mean, you can do what you want. People are, people can have ulterior motives, but we, we are aware of that. So uh, just to summarize, um, for case A, B, and C, both was the ultimate discipline or ultimate So case A received the uh, letter of advisement for the 8.4 H, conduct, engaging in conduct that adversely reflects on the fitness as a lawyer. The second case, she received an admonition, but not only was it the 8.4 H violation, but it was uh, the 4.4 A for um, Engage posting the, the criminal conviction for the purpose of harassing and embarrassing. And then in the third case right now, they dismissed it. So you can see the different cases are weighed very carefully. Uh, and it, all the factors come into the hopper and, and they shake out differently. Okay, so the next case, the case D, an even shorter fact pattern, I think. So the first two cases were really about Facebook. Uh, this one is Instagram, right? So someone had reported to the committee that the respondent attorney in the case had shared several posts on Instagram. Uh, you can see the posts in the materials. Um, the posts were, you know, years old. They were clearly vulgar, misogynistic, and, and sexually explicit. Uh, you know, in the response, the respondent had uh, claimed that he thought at the time that they were harmless and that they he offered them as jokes. And then after consulting with others, he realized they were inappropriate and then took them down. So, I mean, this is an easy one, right? What did the committee consider? Obviously, the vulgarity of it, the misogyny, the, the, the sexually explicit nature, the fact that it was Instagram, it's very much public, right? So in this case, what do you think or what would you have uh, done, right? Dismissal, letter of advisement or admonish? And the person, I believe, that had one letter of advisement pre uh, previously. Mm -hmm. Tough, right? Tell me about it. <laughs> Especially outside of the fact that he tried to murder and get better to down. <laughs> so you know, that, that well, that, that's, yeah. Yeah, I think, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so it was a, in this case, it was a letter of advisement, right? And it was also, again, for rule 8.4H. I'm not going to repeat it because you should have it unless you want me to repeat it. Um, you know what? Maybe I should. Engaging in conduct that inversely reflects on the lawyer's fitness as a lawyer, right? So specifically, the committee determined, right, that they failed to comport with the high standards imposed on us, the members of the bar, right? Because you share these posts that poorly reflect on your judgment and your discretion, as an attorney, right? The fact I think that he needed to be quote unquote counseled to take the pictures down without realizing it was I think also a factor that mm -hmm. the committee had considered uh, that reflected poorly on his judgment. So in this case, Instagram by default is an open platform. So you have to go in and consciously make your posts private. So he was unaware of that. So that's how his posts became widely known. These posts were made years before i mean so this someone was looking at his page for whatever reason um and and went back in history and saw these things so this wasn't a contemporaneous post or a current post um 
So there's a cautionary tale on that. I mean, if you in a prior life or years ago did something that maybe you're not proud of now, or you think maybe would adverse, ad, uh, adversely reflect on you now, you could go back and kind of sanitize your own Facebook pages or your Instagram pages. In this case though, he tried to make a big deal of the fact that he didn't, it wasn't his post. He didn't create the meme. He didn't, he didn't um, write the language that was on the photographs. He was just reposting it and sharing it. Um, so the sharing, you know, should be mitigating factor to him that he didn't create it. And we were like, no, that, 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 that won't fly. Um, so he did pull it down and all these attorneys get, um, he got a lot of blowback from the public on his posts. I mean, it, it hurt his career to some degree. Uh, so it is something to consider. Those are those, those are the general kind of cases that we see with social media. But the one case that really comes to mind, it wasn't our case, although he was admitted through the third department, which I find interesting, but um, it was the matter of Schlossberg. I don't know if you guys saw it. It was, it was a viral post. This attorney down in New York City went into a New York City deli and heard a deli worker and some customers speaking Spanish and went on this horrible tirade against these people and threatened to call ice on them, screaming and cursing. And, you know, if you're in my country, you know, you need to speak English. And it was horrible. And what happened was he was filmed by somebody else. Someone pulled out their camera and filmed him and then gave it to the media. The media picked it up. So, um, he ended up before the first department because that's where he works. And there's something called a discipline by consent. So if you get a disciplinary petition filed against you, there is some ability to negotiate a disposition with the attorney grievance committee and then it gets presented to the court and then the court will either say, yes, I, you know, we approve of that disposition or no, we think something should be you know, worse, whether it should be suspension or disbarment. So in this case, he was horrified um, that it went viral. Um, he claims that he's not a racist. I don't know how he can say that once you say what you do, or he did. Um, and it had horrible repercussions for his practice. I mean, at one point they had a GoFundMe and they had an El Mariachi band posted outside his apartment and follow him to work. And, um, clients fled, you know, he, he, he was paying the, the price. Um, but so in terms of the discipline by consent, he agreed that a censure would be appropriate. Um, he said, fine, you know, I, I'm embarrassed. I should have never done this. I did not hold high standards. Um, I did not uh, conduct myself according to the high standards of law. So I will, I think a censure is appropriate. And the first department agreed um, and, and they censured him. I guess the case raises some interesting points though. There was no harm to a client here. I mean, it, it was solely, private conduct. He didn't post anything publicly. He didn't know he was being filmed. So the question becomes, if someone else films you, um, it, you know, can you be disciplined for that? You know, that the only reason it got to the public was because someone was upset about it and gave it to the media. And that's how it got to the appellate division to, for their consideration. So, you know, would we have investigated, not us per se, but would the attorney grievance committee have investigated a complaint where there was no video? If, if someone just said, hey, I heard this guy, you know, berating these people, Take it up with him. I don't, I, you know, I think he's a racist. What are you going to do about it? I don't know. I think the, the video killed him. I mean, it was, it was number one exhibit and that's all it took. Um, so, you know, watch out for people filming people. Everyone's taking their phones out and taking pictures of each other. And, you know, just, I would just, I'm not worried about anyone in this audience doing something like that, but I'm just saying. But the other thing is, you know, he, he's a human. I mean, he, if he had a bad day, I mean, I, I, I can argue both sides of this case. I do think he should have been censured, but you can argue the other side. He had a bad day. Maybe 
was venting. I don't know. I don't know what his circumstances were, but do you ever get to just put your attorney hat over here and just have a bad day and, and say, I'm sorry. And don't discipline me for that. You know, I didn't it had nothing to do with my conduct as an attorney. Forgive me. And, and not, you know, discipline's not warranted. I don't know. I mean, to err is human, right? Um, and like I said, he suffered the consequences in terms of his practice. I think he lost his job. <laughs> well, then where does the First Amendment free speech no, rights come in too, right? Then, right? And the racism aspect of it, I mean, that he just said, like, you know, I can't eat soup. You know, like, you're sure. You know, like, 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 um, we don't particularly look at, I guess, an interview and, and pull out language from it. I mean, if, if a particular judge was upset by it or it was less an opinion and more, I'm telling you this judge is a liar, you know, that is a statement of fact that can be, um, discerned and, and and that might come before us, but opinions in the media, not so much. We are seeing more hate speech complaints. Um, you know, a lot of um, politics are now playing into things. So we get complaints, you know, from one side of the aisle and the other side of the aisle and asking us to look at things like that. And it all has to do with speech, facts being said, misrepresentations. Um. Getting back to um, that person's hiring um, and First Amendment, um, that the facts you described them sound as if he could have been charged with um, harassment or disorderly conduct, which is, of course, a criminal, um, I guess, violations, but um, it's still um, a crime. Mm -hmm. um, so you don't have the First Amendment doesn't apply. Uh, so this attorney was censured, you said? Yes, publicly censured. That's public. Yep, that's public. So um any if you're if you're censured, suspended, or disbarred, obviously it's public. Anything beyond that, um, the admonition is private, the advisement is private. So let's say you have a complainant, the first complainant where she got the uh advisement for that post about running people over the client or the the complainant only knows that the committee considered it and appropriate action was taken I, 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 I take that back in the advisement they would be told that there was no misconduct the, the complainant would know that there was no misconduct that in the in the admonition they would realize they would be told that appropriate action was taken so they don't know what the level of discipline was or what the rule violations were that were found but they are aware of the status to that limited extent um, 
the threat to call ICE was compelling. I, and again, this wasn't our department. This was the second department. I'm sure that that was very compelling to them. I mean, you can't threaten somebody with a loss of liberty and, and you know, think that that's not going to be an aggravating factor. And to your point, everyone today is concerned about, you know, um, undocumented people and whether or not they are going to be deported or what have you. So, and they, and he had no idea what their status was. You know, he, he had no idea who they were. Um, so yes, I, I'm sure that was an aggravating factor that they took into consideration. Any other questions? So I guess just in the end, I mean, it, 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 it's just a cautionary tale that when you post things, it's gonna become public information, whether you think it's going to or not, that people um, often see things and just get offended by them and then will report them to us. So just be careful before you hit post, you know, if it's a picture of your puppy, great. But if you want to vent because you had a bad day or you, know, you didn't like the way a ruling went, I would just say you could write it and then take 10 seconds to think about it before you actually hit send. So you're the one that sees it? Yeah. Well, as attorneys, we all have an obligation to report misconduct of other attorneys. It's not all misconduct. Um, there's a particular rule that I can pull out, but it's if it materially reflects on their fitness, I believe is what it is. Here it is. It's rule 8.3, if you like. Um, you have an obligation to report if a lawyer knows that another lawyer has committed a violation of the rules of professional conduct that raises substantial question as to that lawyer's honesty, trustworthiness, or fitness as a lawyer. And you can report it either to us or you can report it to a tribunal if you happen to be in the middle of a litigation and it's coming up that way. Um, we have complaint forms online um, and you can fill them out. We don't take anonymous complaints generally. Um, so you have to put your name on it and sign it. Um, and it will be taken up in due course if in fact it states a claim of professional misconduct, but there is an obligation by lawyers to report um, you know, misconduct by other lawyers if it substantially relates to their fitness, trustworthiness, or honesty. Um, can you also talk about how people can volunteer to serve on the Character and Fitness Committee? I am a volunteer and I would love more volunteers. Do you know about that? I, I, am, I am unaware of the process of volunteering to be honest. Oh, well, everyone here can volunteer to be on the Committee for Character and Fitness for the Third Judicial Department. And one of the things um, I've been involved in is reviewing um, petitions to be reinstated as a uh, their license reinstated after they've kind of, uh, you know, had admonishments and been either disbarred or had their um, license suspended. So it's sort of the next steps after many potentially more severe um, violations, but um, it does all interact. It's part of our service as attorneys and to the bar to participate and help ensure that our profession, um, you know, upholds the standards that we all really believe in here as uh, LASNI attorneys and others. Anyway, 
that's my pitch. <laughs> you do interact with the character fitness a little bit in that regard. If we get the reinstatement applications, it's often referred by the court to the character and fitness committee for their determination as to whether or not the attorney now demonstrates a fitness to resume the practice of law. So we have the right to comment on the application based on their prior disciplinary history, if anything else is pending, that kind of thing. And then it also goes to character and fitness. So we do have that relationship there. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that as officers of the court, we have a response, it's a privilege to practice law, to practice. And I think that we just have an obligation to comport ourselves according to the highest of standards. And, um, you know, we kind of give that right up a little bit when we when we take the oath of office. So, um, yeah, I, I just said, be careful, be careful. You know, there's always someone out there looking and watching and, and there's someone's got an ulterior motive often. And um, yeah, people get easily offended. So just just be careful. Well, and it's our responsibility to hold ourselves out in a way that, you know, shows respect for the bar as well. And, and I think that's important, even in our private lives, uh, particularly when we're posting things that indeed are not private. <laughs> so everyone check your accounts. Yeah. <laughs> your Twitter's out there. I mean, everyone likes to vent on Twitter now. Um, or X or whatever it's called, threads. I don't know anything about threads, but I mean, there's just so many different media platforms now. Um, in this first one, it was just a very limited group, you know, um, but people got their backs up and he came before us, so. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Any other questions? I think, uh, no, yeah. Our website has a wealth of information and if you ever want to contact us for any reason whatsoever, either just give us a call up. I'll take the calls and uh, we, can, we can't give legal advice, but we can certainly direct you to different roles or to file a complaint or help you file the complaint or whatever is necessary. So we are always available. And our case decisions are summarized. They are not identified by person name, obviously, because it's confidential, but you can see that the kinds of cases, you can look at the site and see, you know, 8.4H violations and see how many times uh, there's been discipline imposed, private discipline imposed because of that. So I would recommend you to our website. Cool. This is fantastic. Thanks so much again. We really appreciate your time this morning. And that wraps up the whole